I'm kind of the same. Um, so obviously I have a stand-up desk here and yeah. whenever I used to work in the office, I mean, I was same thing, right? I, my, my goal was up until lunch, stand up the whole day. Mm-hmm. And at lunch I would sit down. Uh, I mean, like we had a huge like cafeteria lunch would be brought in for us. Yeah. Um, well, I guess it still is. I just don't work there or in the office anymore, but yeah, you know, it'd be like, that's my sit down time. And then after that, man, the rest of the day is like, oh man, like I'm sitting, this feels so nice and refreshing yeah. <laughs> and join my second cup of coffee for the day. It's like, oh, this is really nice. But yeah, I've, I've lost that stand up stamina. I, it's impressive yeah. watching you do it. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not, trust me, it's not that impressive. It's just like the, I think, I think I just get so, um, I think I just get so focused on something that like the rest of my body kind of like goes, like, I don't pay attention to it. Cause I think I have like a thing where if, if I, I just have blinders on, you know, like my wife always tells me like, and that's where, I, that's where, um, I don't know if we talked about this when, when you and I sat down on your podcast, but I have this huge problem with being present and like really like taking in what's around me because I'm always like just laser focused on either my thought or whatever I'm working on where the rest of it just kind of like falls apart, you know? And that's why like I yeah. end up with these like pains and stuff on my, like I'm sure it's terrible for my knees. Thankfully I'm standing on carpet. So I think that kind of helps because it's like, I'm not standing on some sort of like hard surface, but but yeah, dude, it's, it's uh, I'm sure I'm gonna pay for it the older I get by, well, by, by not, yeah. You can get this like ergonomic mats that are essentially it's like mm. Tempur-Pedic mats that you stand on. Yeah. And I, I used to, when I was a, a mechanical electrical engineer, I used to work uh, for a firm where I had to stand up a lot throughout my whole day. I was just, I'm constantly moving all over. Kind of like how you describe working at Tesla. And yeah. those mats will save your life. I mean, yeah. you can stand on those and you're just comfortable all day standing. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah, it really helps a lot. Did you do it like barefoot or did you have shoes on too? Because I've done a barefoot before on those mats and it actually, I liked it better. Because it's, I feel like the, depending on the shoe, maybe that the shoes were really crappy. We were wearing steel yeah. toes, that's why, but. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The environment I was in, we had to have steel toe shoes on at all times. Yeah. So yeah, there was no, uh, there's no, or, or I guess you could wear the composite toes. I don't know if you've ever seen those. They're, they're they weigh less than the steel toes, but. They Is it like a goofy. sneaker shape? Is that that one? Yeah. 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 Okay. But they look goofy. <laughs> yeah, they look weird, right? That's the one thing too. Like I, oh, when I, when I worked and, and then and they told me like, hey, like you got to wear steel toes. I'm like, yeah, no biggie. But dude, like the first month, like my pinky toes on my feet were destroyed. Rush. Yeah. Dude, it was so bad. It was, it was yeah. so painful and they're so freaking, it literally felt like I was walking around with lead and like I would, I would walk for a minute and I'm like, oh my God, this is so freaking exhausting. In addition to the mental gymnastics you got to do on a daily basis, then your feet are like, the, oh my God. Yeah. But you know, I think the one thing it helped again, it's like adversity, adversity usually like leads to a better thing over time, you know? So anyway, I'm, I'm like rambling so much <laughs> right now. Let's talk about you. So let's uh, expose you to, to, uh, so to my, to my viewers. If you don't mind, give yourself, uh, give a little intro into you, your yeah. channel, and then we'll take the conversation from there. Yeah. So, uh, my name's Nicholas Gibbs. Um, don't try finding me on LinkedIn. I've completely Block myself off everything, um, <laughs> just to keep my own personal life a little private. Um, but yeah, I'm a right now. I'm a software systems engineer. Uh, so essentially, I design uh, architecture. So we're on. on well, you you're using Zoom as your backup. So you know the the infrastructure Zoom works on top of. It's actually something that we do. We design what it sits on top of. So so I do a lot of things of that nature. So it involves you know from storage to compute to networking to firewalls, just you know the whole gamut 
of a you know a cloud architecture. Um, but before that, uh, I was actually a mechanical electrical engineer. That's essentially what I went to school for. Um, my actual degree is in marine engineering, but most people don't understand what that is. Uh, some companies do. So SpaceX was actually one um, when I almost worked for them. Uh, a marine engineer is somebody who has to have disciplines essentially in everything. So essentially somebody who can understand from many different um, perspectives when it comes to engineering. So so what does that mean? From, from electronics to electricity to uh, anything mechanical to um, software to uh, implementing software. So the whole gamut. And the reason is with what I did, it was very specialized niche engineering that are used out on ships. So don't cru crucify anybody here, but I used to work for a, a very large oil company. And oh. I was part of... Yeah. Oh my. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. Um, but yeah, I used to work for, uh, um, a company where we did, uh, ultra deep sea exploration. So when you're out on those vessels, you don't have a lot of manpower, right? You have very few engineers out there, um, and a ship out there to get to the, to the vessels, you need a helicopter. It's about a two hour flight on a helicopter just to get out there. Wow. And the rotation is for me, it was three weeks on three weeks off. So I only worked half the year, but while you're out there, you were everything. You are the engineer that has to be able to do everything, right? A, a part breaks, you, you can't just get a spare part, right? I might have to make it on the lathe, or I might have to weld something. Um, you know, something happens with a, um, you know, a piece of electronic. Maybe a, a diode burns out, or a capacitor just blows up. Okay, well, we need to pull out those PCB boards, and you know, I'll take a spare capacitor and you know, repair it. Or, or we have, you know, we we have a eleven kilovolt, uh, eleven kilovolt, so eleven thousand. Uh, volts of electricity that we're producing for the vessel that gets stored in these huge capacitor banks. And how is that made? It's made with these big Caterpillar engines. They're actual generators, diesel electric. So anyways, the point is it's a, it's a discipline of many types of engineering. So what when I mentioned SpaceX, they're actually going to hire me for a, a, a thermodynamics position or um, a, a their thermal final assembly engineering. I don't really know what it is, to be honest. I didn't take the job uh, because it was in Hawthorne and I was trying to work in Cape Canaveral. Um, I grew up in Cape Canaveral, so that was the reason for that. Um, but yeah, so I eventually got tired of doing that. Um, I got tired of going away, coming back. I mean, a lot of things were good. Uh, I had you know, a, a very privileged life with that from a monetary uh, perspective, which allowed me to do a lot of things with that or my hobbies, right? Traveling and investing. Those are two of my biggest hobbies. Um, and luckily, because I had that type of job, I was able to meet my current fiance in Mykonos. Uh, we were both island hopping and we met in Mykonos right as we were leaving. And, you know, I that's in Greece, know, right? Followed her around. Yeah, it's in Greece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's the Ibiza yeah. of Greece. Nice. <laughs> the best way to think about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we met and, you know, things went well there. Eventually, I got just tired of doing what I was doing. I got tired of being away. And I, just found myself always geeking out on tech, right? I mean, it's just natural engineering thing, I think, to just geek out on tech. And of course, I mean, I, have, I was always obsessed with Elon Musk. Um, so, you know, I, I would always follow him, things he was doing. And, uh, you know, eventually that led me into investing with Tesla. But I also realized I want to get more into the tech side of things, you know, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, it's cool and all, but I did it for so long. I grew up working on cars, you know, I grew up tinkering on things and I was ready for something I didn't know. And that's how I stepped into the software world. And, you know, that took a while, took a lot of perseverance to get somebody willing to hire me uh, because I was an engineer versus because of a degree, which is something I 
it's something I really admire that Elon and people like Sandy Monroe, more people are talking about this. Uh, I, I hate the idea that the degree is the box that we live within now. And my, my, my plea to every company I was applying to, uh, and there's really three companies I was trying to work for. So one of them ended up taking me, but my plea to them was, look, I'm an engineer. Do I know everything about what you do? Do I know everything about software? No. But being an engineer means you can learn. You have the ability to learn complicated things rather quickly and with a good, deeper understanding of it. And that's what I am, right? Uh, forget about this piece of paper. And this one company saw it the same way. It was, it was a company that's based out of uh, Palo Alto, Silicon Valley. And so it, I think it aligned with a lot of their, you know, their ethos and what they believe in. And yeah, so I eventually moved over into that. And I've been doing that for about four and a half years now. So I, clearly I've done decent if I'm still around here. Uh, I, I didn't uh, not succeed in that, that realm. Um, yeah. And then eventually uh, one day my fiance was up in Boston. That's where she's actually from. She was up there. Um, I think it was for a baby shower or something. I forget. But I had for a while, my, my big passion of mine is investing. I, I love investing. I think it's one of the most amazing things that we, we can own a part of what Elon's doing with Tesla. Like just to sit there and think about that. I can own part of that. I'm not doing anything. I, I'm not building. I'm not working. There's no sweat equity. There's no hours yet. I can benefit from that. Like just the idea of that is just ridiculous to me. And sometimes I don't think we appreciate that enough. And anyways, that that's why I've always been into investing. And uh, the first company I ever invested in was Apple. You can see here. And it just, and this is before the iPhone came out. Um, there are rumors about the iPhone com coming out and Microsoft is doing things with touch screens. And that's what made me want to invest in Apple. But after that, I just, I was hooked. And I've had a lot of success uh, to the point where I'm, even though I'm still working, I am financially independent. And that was a goal of mine to hit that before 30. I hit it a week, a, a week and two days shy of 30. So <laughs> I just timing. barely got it. I, I, I kid you not. <laughs> I have right here, I have right here a, a little note I wrote to myself. I mean, I don't know if you can see like how beat up this is, yeah. but this is a note I wrote back in 2015 with that goal to hit that. And I got the idea from uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey's show with Jim Carrey, where he wrote himself a check and mm -hmm. just to manifest. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do this and see if it works. And yeah, coincidence maybe, but it worked. But yeah, so anyway, so uh, I decided I want to share a lot of the success I've had with other people. And, and if nothing else, I thought if I have a family one day and something happens to me, I at least want my kids to have something they can look back and see, okay, how did dad do this? What did dad do that was different? And at least if I put enough videos out there, maybe they can understand the way I was thinking and take the good things, leave out the bad things and, and go and do their own thing with it. So, so yeah, long and short, that's, that's me. That's uh, why I'm here. And yeah. I'll stop Dude, talking. what a beautiful story <laughs> uh, for, for, for those. Uh, so what's the name of your, uh, what's the name of your channel on YouTube? Yeah. So uh, my channel's name is investing against the grain with the idea of, of moving away from this, this idea that you always need to be diversified, right? Diversification, everything. And people always use Warren Buffett as well, Warren Buffett, you know, had this hedge fund manager and they made this bet about S&P 500 will outdo what they do and all this stuff. But people forget that Warren Buffett's actual thoughts and philosophy, if you've ever read anything he's written, is that 
diversification is a hedge against ignorance. And so if you do not want to do the homework, if you don't want to get as deep as we all do, making your own models, things of that nature, yes, S&P 500, 1,000%. However, if you want to go a different way, that is why my channel exists, to show you just what I do and let you maybe copy and be and realize, do I know this company well enough? Because if Nick is doing XYZ and he's going this in depth with it, and I'm not going that in depth, then maybe I'm not doing enough homework. Maybe I don't understand the business well enough. And so that's really the impetus behind it. And then with my background with mechanical, electrical, now software engineering and what Tesla's doing, I thought, man, maybe I can explain some things that are happening that people don't quite understand at a deeper level. Like I did an entire breakdown about what a motor is and the components of a motor and why Tesla is just so next level with it, you know, talking about inverters and talking about the stator and all that. And so just trying to break it down the way I wish people would have broken it down to me when I was going through school. So investing against the grain to long, perfect, long answer to your question. No, you're good. I, and I'll make sure to list a, a link for that in the description below as well, in case uh, anybody wants to, uh, and which I highly, highly recommend. Nicholas as one of the coolest channels, honestly, like I, I've started to go through your catalog and mm-hmm. I just love your, your honesty and passion for, for, for the field and what, and it's, it's clear that this is something that's near and dear your heart. And you really are trying to get a, get a message out there for, for yourself and others that are, uh, that are interested in that as well. Like, like you just said, like it's, it's something that you wish somebody did that for you as, as you were learning about that stuff. And it's clear that you're trying to do that for others, which is which is awesome. And that's what I really enjoy about your channel. Plus, I was on your I channel did. as well. And you and I were talking for like over two hours. And I just I feel I, I just really vibe with you, bro. Like I really, really vibe with you. I feel like we're sort of like uh, kind of caught from the same cloth in, in some ways. But like there, there are certain things I really want to sort of pick your brain about. And yeah. one of the things you were talking about, uh, especially being an engineer, is that you um, so so obviously you studied engineering in school. You were uh, an engineer where in pretty hardcore, I would call hardcore engineering practice where you literally had to uh, come up with solutions isolated in a, in a place with like physical solutions that would solve problems. Um, and, and the one thing that I've I'm not an engineer by practice, but I've worked around a lot of engineers. Uh, some of my best friends are engineers. So I've been around that world. And one of the things that really stuck out to me um, when it comes to engineering is, and you tell me if I'm thinking about this correctly or, or, or not, is that at the core, engineering is is just purely problem solving. You know, it's problem solving in a in a physical space, but it's a skill set that theoretically could be applied to anything. You're just you're just thinking about how to solve problems. Am I thinking about engineering correctly in that way? And if that's the case, uh, talk to me about how much similarities you saw between your say your engineering job with the oil company and now with software development, which in a way I think about as a different way of problem solving. You're just sitting down and figuring out how to write specific code or design certain things to solve a specific problem. How much does that base help? So tell me if I'm thinking about it correctly and and is it truly that interchangeable? Yeah, I think at at its core, yeah, I would say engineering in general is problem solving. But I think, I think, I don't know, sometimes I don't like these labels of engineering or anything like that. It's just humans and learning to think a certain way. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I mean, like we're coming on here, maybe you have an issue with with your software and you're just trying to troubleshoot, right? You're just trying to solve the problem. I mean, I think it's these innate things that we all do, but take that and just amplify it a little bit to bigger problems that might be more complicated. You might need to understand how certain systems work. 
So yeah, at the root, a lot of it is problem solving and trying to figure out the solutions based on what's possible, right? And understanding what at the basis is possible. Not everything is always possible. There's not always a right answer to something, but there's a, a way to patch something or fix something or come up with something temporarily, right? We see that with with Tesla and their chips, right? Everybody, you know, talks about how they recreated all this new software or anything. So what they actually did was they took all these um, microchips, and what they did is so hardware in general, your computer has everything has it something called firmware, and this is essentially the software for the hardware for it to run on. Okay, it's not the actual operating system or anything like that. It's it's the instructions for the hardware on what to do, and that's what Tesla did. They took all these different chips that have all these different little idiosyncrasies within them, they all work differently. And they created a, a, a firmware, you know, a, a patch for all of them, essentially, where they could replace and essentially just scrub it, put the new firmware in there to do what they needed to do. And this is a form of troubleshooting, problem solving, but it's a patch. It's a temporary thing until they can get to where they really need to go. And so it's all about understanding what, what the bounds of your limitations are. But I think a big, big part, and a lot when you see Tesla, you see SpaceX, mainly SpaceX. You you see a lot of um, quotes like like Elon saying um, failure is a good thing because it lets us learn a lot quicker, and that's true. Failure is a very important part of engineering, but I think a big part of engineering that's not talked a lot about is kind of weighing the the risk and reward of certain situations. So, for example, um, let's take the 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 vehicles. Everything in the Tesla vehicles, which you won't see this in a lot of vehicles, actually, um, from an electronic perspective, we'll just take the computer, the full self-driving computer. There's redundancy built into that. When it comes to engineering, and to your point, uh, or to your question before, the things I saw from the oil industry to what I see in the software world, everything is about redundancy. Everything. All right. At the end of the day, we, we plan for hardware to fail. That's mm-hmm. something we always, always plan on. But what mm-hmm. can't fail is the software. We need to make sure the software doesn't fail. There's ways around that, right? Maybe you have a certain circuit board that has two M2 chips and you have copies of the software on each of them, right? Tesla with the full self-driving, they literally have two computers on there that they use in tandem, right? So they're actually both doing operations at both times. However, if one side were to fail, the other one can pick everything up and be just fine. So when it comes to, to engineering, redundancy is everything. I saw that out there when I worked in the ship in the oil field, right? You had two, if not four of everything in case something went down, right? You can't have that happen. Imagine a FSD beta vehicle driving down the road and all of a sudden one of one of the uh, FSD computers goes down, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, right now your beta, you take over, no big deal. Take that into a robo taxi world, that's not okay, right? So yeah. a lot of it is redundancy. Yes, problem solving is a big part of it, but Problem solving comes with the understanding of the redundancy of everything. And it's just, it's something that I don't see a lot of people talk about. And so when I analyze things, a lot of times, this is how I risk risk assess. And I see Elon does it a lot, or at least when he talks about things with SpaceX, you see it a lot. Um, He doesn't blatantly say, but you can tell in the things he's thinking, what's the worst possible outcome? And if that's an outcome I can live with, then let's move on. Even if we anticipate something horrible happening, it's okay yeah. because I can live with that outcome, right? Because the benefits outweigh the risk. So in other words, uh, we test out the Raptor. It blows up. Okay, that's fine. It's a controlled environment. The risk, we know where all the debris would fall. 
or it would just you know extinguish itself and you know turn into dust essentially. Okay, that is a isolated thing we can we can work with and we can be fine with that. But Got it. throw some humans in there, and if those humans die, okay, I can't live with that. Right. right. So so that's when right. I mean, I don't know if you saw the documentary of going back to the moon or space or I forget what it's called. Not yet. I, I saw my cube, but oh. I have to, I have to check it out. Yeah. You should watch it, but it's a perfect example of that where they test a mitigation for not having what happened, what was it, in 2003, 2002? Um, I forget which, Columbia, I think it was, that exploded mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we lost astronauts when they were coming down. Right. So in the documentary, they show you a test of them making sure that the, the capsule, the, the nose of it, comes off and falls away safely. Right. That's that's something they learned. That's the mitigate, right? How can yeah. we think about these things? But anyways, I'm rambling. But no, yeah, you're think, good. Good. No, I was just say problem solving, risk analysis, and understanding what's possible, not possible. I think that's the biggest thing when it comes to, to engineers, or at least the good engineers. Because if you can't at least figure out what's possible, then then you don't know like which way to go, right? You, you need, I yeah. mean, Elon talks about first principles, right? That's, I'm butchering what I'm trying to say, but first principles, easiest way to think about it, right? Does physics allow it? Does the math allow it? Do our current resources allow it? If so, okay, this is how we can move forward. And t- to me, that, that's a better way of saying it than what I've been saying, but it's a beautiful message. Nice. Yeah, I think, I think what's super interesting there, my takeaway is that, so thank you for giving us such detailed insight there about what what a what an engineer like is at the core, right? And the thing that really st- stuck out to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like one of the core principles you're also trying to achieve is to understand where where the threshold is for acceptable outcome, which is kind of what you talked about, right? So you're kind of saying like, depending on the context of the situation, if you have humans involved, the threshold for good enough is like like just maximum like if that is a hundred when humans are involved uh if you're going to space a hundred is the the threshold of risk reward right which means that like as like basically impossible risk and or basically no risk and a reward is guaranteed as close as you can get physically but in certain situations say I'm just making one up. I'd say where a human isn't involved and you're just trying to say maximize the speed of something happening, like the speed is really getting there is really more important than the end result in some situations, then maybe your your threshold is, I don't know, 95 or 90. Yeah. It's like, hey, I, I feel confident enough to get to that point. Um, how how does one develop a skill set to try and gauge how to, how to how to arrive to that threshold? Because I and the reason why I ask that is because I think it's very analogous to investing as well. Like I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a you know a investor by any means, like a, like a professional or anything like that. But I have invested in the in the past, and that is one of the questions I always freaking ask myself. Is that I feel like that is like the ticket to really understand how to capitalize on opportunities, either be it in a work setting where you're trying to push something through that's going to be very innovative, but potentially it could fail. But if you feel like you do these things, it'll get you through. Like how, how do you think about developing that skill set? And, and is there any analogies to investing with it? You know, like whoever solves this, I feel like, you know, could become like a a quadrillionaire, right? Because I feel like that is the essence. That's the essence of, of finding the best possible outcome with that risk reward ratio, uh, sort of like, um, solved in a sense. How, like, 
I don't know if that makes any sense, but like that's that's how I think about um, that's how I think about that situation where you're trying to calculate what is the best possible outcome given the given the variables that you're given from a risk perspective. Let me know if yeah, that, uh, let me know if that <laughs> makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, I think it does. Uh, and before I answer this, this is not financial advice. Uh, yes, it is. Horrible. I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is horrible advice. What I'm about to say. Um, now, this may not hold true for everybody. There are smarter people out there than me. Um, but I mean, I think we would all agree. Someone like Elon is definitely up there with one of the smartest people. And I mean, if you just look at him and if I compare that to like what I've learned from investing, the best way to get to that point is to live it and make mistakes mm. and learn from your mistakes. Uh, that's the, that's the biggest thing. It's look, when you're investing, you're going to lose money. It's going to happen. Nobody's perfect. Right, you're you're not gonna. Warren Buffett lost money. Warren Buffett had some horrible deals, right? Uh, Chamath, you know, amazing investor. He's had some horrible, horrible things. Uh, Kathy Woods, she's in the, <laughs> she's in a lot of trouble right now, right? Her portfolio is hurting. But, but the thing you have to do, and this goes with anything in life. Uh, you know, we could talk about engineering, but it, it's okay to fail. What's not okay is to not take stock of what happened, sit back, reflect on it, iterate, and try to take something away. Because if not, you're just failing and failing and failing, repeating the same things over and over. This is why Elon is stresses, it's okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes. It's why with FSD, he talks about it's two steps forward, one step back, because they don't know what the right answer is. If they did, they would just do it. So they need to make mistakes, they learn from those mistakes, and they take something out of that, and then they iterate. Now, with investing, hopefully, you make those more of those mistakes when you're younger and you have less capital to invest and, and you, you learn. But there are some mistakes that you only learn by having a decent amount of money invested. You know, how to deal with a margin call. Man, I tell you, there's a lot of people probably listening right now who are learning what a margin call is and, and dealing with it. And it's a scary, painful thing. And the time to learn about that probably isn't when it's happening. But you, you never thought you'd be in that situation. So, okay, it happens, you deal with it, but now you need to go back and iterate and be like, why did this happen? What did I do that was wrong? Was I too bullish? Did I take out too much on margin? Was I too concentrated in something? And then it turned against me and all of a sudden that amplifies everything going against me, right? So I think it's making mistakes is the fastest way to do that, but you have to learn from those mistakes. So if anything, I guess the answer to your question is make as many mistakes as you can and make sure you are learning as quickly as you can from all of those mistakes. But you're not going to read in a book the answer to something. You're not just going to think up the perfect idea for something. Because even someone like Elon, even someone like Kathy Woods, even Warren Buffett are constantly making mistakes. But what they do that they're really good at is learning from those mistakes really quickly and making sure that every mistake isn't, isn't just a mistake. There's a reason behind it. And we make sure we learn from it. So that's that's a huge thing. I mean, I have an Excel sheet of lots of mistakes I've made and trying to figure out, okay, why did this work? Why didn't that work? Right? Like I, I play with options. I mean, I, I have my portfolio that that doesn't get touched, but I do play with options. I think most of us do because we all believe this company is going to 10x, if not more. And so it's it's hard not to be a little bit in options for, for a lot of us. Yeah. But with that, you're learning where I think we're all learning right now when it comes to options. And Options are fairly new into the industry. So to think there's a wealth of knowledge out there, there's some, right? Unfortunately, Chicken Genius isn't on YouTube anymore, which I wish she would be. But 
we need to learn from our mistakes. And we, and that I think is the key to all to life in general, make mistakes, learn from them as quickly as possible and make sure you reflect on it. Yeah. I love that answer so much. I love that answer so much. I think, I think there's this sort of, I don't know if, I don't know if you, if you've experienced this in your life, but from, from what I see, I think, I think so many people kind of goes back to like, it's almost like a microcosm of like what social media is today is like people only see the good things and like, like say you go on Instagram, I don't know, Dan Bilzerian, pick somebody. I, I don't even follow <laughs> him, but just pick him as an example. Everything is like all the successes, all the perfection, all the good things are happening. Right. And I, and I'm not using that as an, an, an analogy of somebody who knows how to like fail. Well, all I'm saying is that we get a snippet of the wins, right. Of, yeah. of the perceived wins. But I think, I think the, when people say, you know, it's, you don't see the work behind the scenes. I think in my opinion, I think that's what it relates to. It's the failures. It's sort of the art of sitting down and going through steps to try and figure out what is the correct one. And I think one of the things that happens sometimes is that folks uh, maybe are trying to approach things too scientifically because they don't want to fail or they're afraid to fail or they're afraid of what people are going to think if they try something that's unorthodox or something that seems weird or maybe people won't approve of something. And I don't know if that's like a social thing that has happened where people are are more hesitant to try things just out, out of out of fear of failure, because that is such an important, in my opinion, and, and I think and I think you would agree just based on your on your on your answer, it's such an important part of of becoming a success in whatever thing you're trying to achieve, is that you have to mess up. You have to mess up. It's like, I don't, even Elon, you know, as you talked about it, even Elon is somebody that has failed a trillion times and he's talked about it openly, right? So I think it's like, how how do you think about, and I don't know if maybe this is something that you you, you do on your channel too, but like, how do you, how, how do you convey a message that tells people that is okay to fail and they should actively go out there and and try and fail you know because i think with with money specifically i think there is perhaps rightfully so people are very afraid to tell people to make a, a, a mistake with their money because uh, for some people for a, for a percentage of that population that could mean like some very very dire consequences but i don't know how else you get to sort of um you know, a position where you have created wealth or have created a situation where you have a lot of freedom uh, from a financial perspective, unless you go and, and mess some things up, you know, maybe you get lucky yep. and, and you hit and you hit gold. But like, I feel like that failure is such an important part of that journey. Like how, how do you balance that messaging when you're trying to sort of convey that? Or is that something that you don't try to convey? Like help, help me think through that a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't try to I think get out any particular message. I just try mm -hmm. to talk about me, what I'm doing, and just you know, I I, I take the um, um, I don't know, kind of Joe Rogan approach. Or when I my channel, mine's just a stream of consciousness. If you yeah. want to know what I'm going to talk about on this day, pr pretty much just see what's going on in the market, see what's going on with Tesla or SpaceX or Elon, or maybe there's just something I've been thinking about for a while. I'm like, hmm, I really want to talk about this. But for the most part, I'm just stream of consciousness. So. I don't believe in trying to tell anybody how to do anything. Just, hey, I'm one template. Farzad's another template. Um, Dave Lee, Rob Mauer, there are other templates. Watch them, Cheek and Genius, right? And then do with it what you will. Um, but I would encourage people to 
see, I feel like this is a deep conversation because I don't think it's, it's very hard. It's, you're almost condi- from a young age, right? We start off in traditional school. Uh, well, you, I mean, uh, you, your uh, education was in, in Spain, so I didn't go to school in Spain, so I don't want to speak to that, but at least in the States, we have very specific ways of teaching and it's a lot about either failure or success. And that's all, that's all we think about as, mm-hmm. you know, success, success is great. Right. And so, okay, I got an A, I got an A, it's great. Right. And you, what I've noticed is you start to see these students who are just really good students and they're used to getting A's or used to getting A's or used to putting the hard work in, but if they ever fail or stumble on something, it just ruins them. It mm-hmm. devastates them, right? They're not used to falling and scraping their knees. And I think our whole education system, our whole adolescence, we, we grow up kind of this way. There's some things that teach us how to fail, like sports and things like that, but not everybody plays sports. So, you know, that rolls out for what, 75% of people, 50% of people? I don't know. But we have already this conditioning of it's not okay to fail. And I think what I like about what a lot of people are doing, and honestly, some of these, uh, I have some friends with little kids who are going to different types of schools where they encourage people to fail right? Like they learn through failure. And so, so I don't know, it's a tough thing. It's how do you change someone's impression of, I mean, you, your example of Instagram is a beautiful one. We we see, or or scary one. Uh, We see these couples on Instagram and they're so perfect. They're amazing. Look at this picture. Oh, look at this video. Look at this vacation they took. And I'm just as guilty of it, right? I put the good stuff out there. I don't put the bad stuff out there. I don't think that's nefarious. It's, you know, you're not trying to air your dirty laundry, right. but I don't hear enough people talking about, yeah, we fought like three times on that trip. Yeah. We got over it and we, you know, it's, we didn't understand each other. We had different points of views, but no, it wasn't like everything was perfect and magical 24 seven. No, right. these are real things. She got annoyed with me. I got mad at her. I burnt this. I messed that up. Like this is real life, but, but with relationships, Talking those out, having those arguments, understanding their perspective, understanding my perspective. You know, maybe we come to an agreement or maybe we just both agree. Okay, I don't agree with you, but I respect that. You don't agree with me, but you respect that. Can we move on from that? Can we get over this argument or this, you know, confrontation in five minutes? Or is it something that ruins our whole day and we hold a grudge on it? Right. I would argue like with me and my fiance, like we we tend to get over arguments or anything within five minutes. Yeah. I was like, all right, well, that's it. It's, It's we're done. Move on. But that, that is what you need to build, that reputation, those mistakes, those falls, those failures, that, that scraping your knee on the ground. And I don't know how you teach that to people, because like I was saying, your adolescence, you're taught pass or fail in school, right? And, and we, we reward so highly the passing. We don't reward the failures. Yeah. And, and then when people fail, we don't really pull them aside and be like, okay, why did you fail? What's the why behind this? Where there's way more information in that person failing versus that person passing. That yeah. person passing maybe just memorized a couple of things better than he did, or maybe they just cheated. Who knows? Yeah. Right. We we don't know, but but with with that conditioning and then social media amplifies that as well. So like we never get out of this. Everything has to be perfect. You know, don't do anything unless you have all the answers. So it's really tough. But I think the best thing you could do is talk about it, and hopefully, pe- enough people see conversations like this and they realize, okay, it's in my head that I have to be perfect. It's yeah. in my head. I have to look like that. It's in my head. That relationship has to be like that. It's in my head that I have to get an A on everything. You know what? Maybe it's more worthwhile. You get a C on a test 
but you went out and you had this amazing conversation with this older gentleman that older gentleman that inspired you to do something else. Yeah. That's more important. Yeah, you failed, but you really won the big scheme of things. But you just never know. So yeah. Yeah. I think that's <laughs> I dude, I, I love this. This is such a I'm I'm so stimulated by this conversation. This is freaking awesome. <laughs> um I think I wonder how much of it I forget which book I read this in. I think it was Atomic Habits. I forget. Um, Great book. It's such a good book. I think it was that book where um, the author was talking about creating unwritten rules for yourself. Like you're somehow, I forget if it was that one. Anyway, there was this concept where um, humans tend to be like really good at sort of creating an unwritten rule for themselves that says, hey, you can't do this right? You just can't do this either because of society sort of like molding you to think that way, or as a human being, you just tend to sort of default that way, that way. And I wonder how much of that, Hey, I can't, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I want to avoid pain. I want to avoid failure. I shouldn't do this because potentially people are going to think this, or my family's not going to approve or, you know, which I, I think are valid concerns, but, you know, I think one of the things that, in my opinion, again, nobody follow my advice. I, you know, this is just what worked for me is like, unless you have pain in your life, unless you have something that really is a teacher to you, that where you really something hurt really badly. And like you said, unless you do the work to, to, to find out why that happened and then prevent that thing from happening again and iterating on that thing, I feel like that is the only way to really become uh, very impactful in the thing that you're doing. And pain is the best teacher, I think. Pain is the best teacher. Yes. You can definitely have mentors and you can have, you know, you know, I think, I think that's why there's courses out there and there's people that teach things. A lot of them, you know, do good work, but you know, with any sort of like rule, Pareto rule, 80% of those courses ain't going to really teach you the thing that you're looking for. 20% of them might sort of guide you towards the right direction, but ultimately like feeling that fire is the ultimate thing that I think ends up teaching you a, a serious lesson. Right. And, yeah. and that avoidance of pain, cause that, that is really just pain. It sucks. Like no one, you know, I think we're both here say, saying like, Hey, failure is, is a key way of, of doing well and like, or, or achieving goals that you want to achieve. But part of my French, it fucking sucks. It sucks. You know, and I'm sure everybody has experienced a lot of it in their life and, and it's hard to avoid it, but I almost feel like and this is sort of like where my brain goes. Like, I wonder if maybe like how, how does the acceptance of pain, um, maybe that is the route to, to maybe have more people comfortable with, with taking risks, you know, and, and doing things. And I wonder in some loose way, like we talked about Elon a little bit here. I wonder if Elon's becoming this sort of person that more and more people are looking to, you know, model three ramps, SpaceX freaking almost going bankrupt, Tesla almost going bankrupt. You know, the guy has been open about his failures. I wonder if subconsciously or either on purpose, that's his way of sort of trying to fix almost that root cause, that first principles thing where how do we move society forward? We get more people comfortable with pain and failure because otherwise yeah. you don't find, you can't solve the art of, uh, of like finding solutions, you know, cause it's, it's science, but it's also art, you know? Yeah. I don't know. And half of that. So I think half of it is the pain of the failure, but I think the more important part is the pain on the self-reflection and the iterating. So uh, we'll use relationships, for example. For anybody listening, think about a previous relationship you had. Maybe it was toxic, maybe, or maybe it just didn't work out. Like, how frequently did you check back in with yourself 
and think, what did I do wrong? How can I be better in the next relationship? Right. That's, that to me is the harder work and probably the more painful work. Right. It's, it's like you failed a test. Okay. Okay. I failed a test, but now I need to go back and figure out where I made my mistakes. And, and that learning process is way harder, I think. I, and, but that's the most important part. It's the most important part. I, I, I have a, a few friends with kids who are in high school or yeah, in high school, middle school. And I tell them all the time, look, whenever you're learning something and you're starting to get really, really frustrated and you can't figure it out, that's when you need to get the happiest because that means mm-hmm. you're, you're right there. You're right there. It's yeah. about to happen. So you need to embrace that because learning is hard and nobody ever says that. Learning is not supposed to be easy. If it was easy, we would all be in the matrix and plug a cable in the back of our head and boom, <laughs> yeah. we know everything. Learning is meant to be hard. We're changing yeah. our neurons in our head. We're, we're carving new roadways in our mind. We're changing the way we think about things. I mean, like think about what's happening when you learn. You're remapping everything in your brain, all that gray matter. You're, I mean, it's, it's a heavy thing. But once you understand learning is hard, it's supposed to be hard then maybe you don't get too scared of when it is hard. You're like, okay, well, this is how it's supposed to be. I expect this to be hard. You know, it, it's when I jump into the pool and it's, I know it's going to be cold at first, I already expect that. It's not like I'm going to get frustrated when I'm halfway in the water, just walk out. No, I, I expect this. And I know once I'm in, it feels great. So, I, but so I think those are two parts. Yes, not being scared to fail and have that pain, but then making sure that, okay, you don't just get up and walk away. No, stop reflect, learn, iterate, move on. And I yeah. think that's what Tesla and SpaceX do so well, so well, a- yeah. at least from outside. I mean, you work there. I don't know. <laughs> so you tell me. It's true. It's 100% true. And and the other thing with that too is, and this is where um, I've been thinking about this so much lately. So t- Tesla, SpaceX, you know, Elon and his companies are, are thought of as like, um, like almost like engineering marvels on obviously but it's almost like um my perception of what people perceive the companies to be are these uh uh, wonders of a scientific approach that's how i think about it like like oh they must be this good because they are just very good like extremely good at using uh the laws of physics and and scientific approach and data to make every single decision possible you know that's my perception of how people perceive those companies but really the more i think about it the more i think about it is the reason why they're so successful is because either on purpose or by accident they are figuring out the art the art of how to make stuff happen and I, the reason why I say the art is because it's the fuck it. Let's just do this. <laughs> let's just yeah. try it. Who knows what's going to end up here? You know, who knows how, who knows what the end result's going to be? Yeah. And I'm not, and I'm not discounting their engineering prowess. Of course, they're brilliant engineers in that company and they're very, very good at utilizing data to solve problems. But I think the key distinction here is that the data is not telling them the answer. The data is sort of a guide towards what direction is likely to be the one that's going to be the the, the ultimate goal. And then the art is sitting down and then trying stuff out. 
and then trying stuff out to see if a solution is going to come forward that's going to show itself, you know? And it's sort of, and it's sort of when I think about like the pain and the failure and things that can go wrong, that that's going to hurt, that you have to learn from, it's from that art uh, process. It's from that process of the art of getting to the end result is that iteration has to, has to happen, you know? And I don't think we're really going to get to a point where we're going to really know what the right solution is or what the, what the right path is until we literally have AI building things. Cause AI is going to be the only thing that's going to know what the answer yeah. is before the answer gets put in place, because it just, it's just going to know what the right thing is, what the ultimate most efficient uh, solutions going to be and the AI is just going to make it happen. You know, humans are just, we just can't, I just don't know how we can do that. You know, I have no idea how we can do that. I can't tell you how many times, I don't know if you've seen this in your job and I would love to hear about this in, in your previous work. I can't tell you how many times, and I'm not shitting on these people. These are great people. People would come through and be like, this data is saying this, and it has been done this way before. And this is what the data says. And this is what the tool says. This is the correct solution. We shouldn't try anything else. We should put this forward. And 99 out of 100 times, it's by far the most suboptimal solution there is out there because we're not reading the data correctly or or there's something in the data that's not showing itself to be the the actual, something's messing it up, right? I don't know if you saw this in your previous life, but I feel like th there's... I don't know, like, I just keep going back to that, like, art thing. It's like, I feel like life and problem solving and things, like, to, to make stuff happen, as much as Elon gets a sort of the a really good rep for being a brilliant engineer, like, I view him more as an artist more than anything, because he's just mastered that side of failure. You know, that yeah. he's mastered that side of, like, let's figure out how to solve problems. I don't know. I might be thinking about it incorrectly, yeah. but, yeah. So, yeah, so a lot there. Um so, so first, I, I think I don't think there's a lot of engineering that actually uh, encourages failure. To be honest, um, I mm. think I think it takes. It's not just engineering. I mean, and maybe this goes back to what you're saying. Like, it's an art form. It's not just engineering or just thinking about a certain way. I mean, the best engineer I've ever worked with, um, his mind was brilliant. I mean, he he was not great in a lot of things in his personal life. But his mind, when it came to solving problems, was just brilliant. I mean, I'd be looking at a problem for like an hour and he'd come in and five minutes, boom. And it's like, what? Like, get out of here. Like, that makes so much sense. The way <laughs> you just got to that, like, it's so obvious. It's so clear. Like, why can't? And I mean, luckily, I, I worked with this individual for about three years. So, you know, it, it definitely like taught me how to learn new ways. But again, that was embarrassing and failure over and over watching this individual who was my same age too. I mean, talk about really humbling yourself. It's not like this is someone who's a lot older. It's like, oh, the wisdom. No, yeah. same age. He's one year older than me, but just brilliant. And being able to have that humility, be like, okay, you know what? I don't care. I'd rather fail and learn and just soak in as much knowledge as I can, you know, take the good things that this individual has. But but a lot of engineering, I don't think encourages uh, failure, but some some aspects of engineering not only encourage it, but it's the most fun part of it. Mater material science, material engineering. Oh my God, it's so much fun. Half your job is breaking things in on intentionally, seeing where you can get enough sheer stress to snap something, right? I mean, just, and, and that's, that's I think, a lot of reason why there, there aren't many companies that have material engineering teams like what I understand Tesla to have. 
Sure. And based on my understanding, they kind of float between SpaceX and Tesla. I'm not sure no. how true that is, but that's it's my true. understanding. It's true. But yeah, but um, uh, I know you were, oh, you were talking about the idea of AI being able to solve everything. So I, I was listening, I'm about maybe halfway through your interview you just did with um, Connecting the Dots. I think mm-hmm. that's the channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, fascinating stuff, by the way. But um, sorry for the audio. This, <laughs> no, that's fine. But this idea, sometimes I push back on this idea that AI is just going to be able to solve everything. And the reason I push back in it is because I don't know, and maybe people say this whenever we get to artificial intelligence, like to a level of better than a human. But the things that I struggle to see how we actually incorporate this to AI is our imagination and our consciousness. And I think that's a big part of it. And, and maybe I'm wrong about the imagination. I mean, there's some AI out there that does amazing art already or can compose a, a, a symphony that's just ridiculous. But, but I wonder if that will always separate us from any artificial intelligence, just that uh, ability to create a new thought, right? I don't know if AI will be able to do that or, I mean, maybe that's just my limiting thinking or me just stuck in my own box, but I think we have ways to think of new ideas. I don't know if AI will have that because AI knows the things we've taught it. it is, it's, a lot of it is the problem with simulation, but in, again, this stream of consciousness, because I'm about to contradict myself now, because then I think about full self-driving and AI is learning on the spot what to do, what not to do. And it's why simulators can't just teach vehicles. So I don't know. Right. I, that's a tough one. I, I get... I'm so curious about that and I'm scared about it at the same time. Uh, yeah. Just one last thought here. Um, when you and connecting the dots were talking about, you know, all these humanoids doing all these things and, you know, all these factories and building and all that stuff that scares me, not because of like, you know, the movie I robot, which by the way, clearly must be one of Elon's favorite movies <laughs> um, <laughs> must be, but so I don't think like robots are going to take over the world or anything. It, it scares me because of what it will do to humans and how lazy it might make us. And to your point, like our, our fear of pain and failure, like it scares yeah. me that if life is too easy, that we won't be what we want to be, or we won't, you know, we need that struggle. Like we need it as humans. It's like we, we need, it's why we like saunas. Like it's the heat. That's why working out is so endorphin releasing. Like we need that. And yeah. I, I get scared that it won't be in my lifetime. I don't think, but it's possible. So, so let me let me run through it like a like a like a scenario there. So, say like say AI gets to a point where they where it solves all our problems per se. Like we don't have to work, and then it makes us like you know say the la- we become lazy and we become sort of like almost unfulfilled, right? Is that the struggle and pain and failure that the species has to go through in order to come out of the other side? and be one with AI and live our most, uh, the ultimate life that a human can live. Like, is there gonna be like this transition where, and this is gonna be the dumbest graph of all time, but like say as AI gets better, you know, you solve a bunch of problems, humans become way more efficient and then everything's solved. And then the human spirit, let's just call it the human spirit, the, the will to be, be a human and, and really uh, maximize our potential freaking like goes to zero. Right. And then once it goes to zero, we go through some crazy 
insane carnage of like just humanity almost goes extinct because of it. I don't, I don't even know how to think about this, but then that is the pain that humanity has to go through in order to come out of the other side and get to like a thousand. You know what I'm saying? Does that make any sense? Like, I wonder if that is the, I wonder if that is the ultimate outcome is like AI comes, solves everything. Humanity doesn't know what to do with itself. There is mass anxiety, depression. Who knows? There is like crazy suicides because people like just are not fulfilled. And, you know, it, it gets really freaking dark. You know, and this is a really dark thought. And apologies for people that this might be uncomfortable, but this is how my brain works. And I'm really sorry. Uh, but like we have to go through that to be come out of it on the other side, you know? Yeah. And, and this is something that I've been thinking about, too, because I'm with you. Like, I don't know. Dude, like AI is scary. Like it, it, it sounds incredible on paper, and it will, it will, be, there will definitely be incredible for some sort of percentage of the population. But then, is it going to be incredible for a hundred percent of the population, or is it going to be incredible for one percent of the population? You know? Yeah, I, I think, I, if I was a a betting man, which I am a betting man actually, <laughs> I don't know why everyone says you're like an investor thing. after all. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would, I would wager that that our evolution with AI, with humanoids, things of that nature, would be a lot more symbiotic and that the humanoids would be more so just advanced robots. Not that they would, you know, have this own intelligence of their of themselves, right? They know how to do certain things. They're very human-like, but I don't think they ever get to a point of actual consciousness. And what I could see more is us merging with it, right? It, you lose an eye, you get a robotic eye that can do cool things, or maybe you intentionally decide to switch your eyes out for a certain, it sounds very Black Mirror-ish, but I, I see us being more, you know, having synergies with with technology and robotics and, and AI in that sense. And mm-hmm. maybe to quote Elon, right, to help alleviate this bandwidth limitation of using, you know, our meat sticks to do stuff and where we can just know things immediately. I, I don't know. I, I I think the idea of consciousness can be very hard to solve, but I think this symbiotic relationship with with AI and robots will allow us to do certain things like have a breakthroughs to be able to go to Mars or go and be, you know, spacefaring, you know, species. I, I think it's more likely that happens than than this, you know. We have these robots that do everything for us and we don't have to move and we sit in these chairs and we just Go around watching TV and eating like Wally style. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I, I, I don't, I don't think that that will happen. I think we'll, we'll just more so embed ourselves with it. At least I hope so. That'd be yeah. a lot cooler. I think. How so? Do you define consciousness as that ability of like self problem solving and like be able to like that do that art side of what a human is essentially like whatever the analog is for for AI? Is that how you define consciousness? <laughs> I don't know what I define consciousness as, to be honest. I think consciousness, it's whatever it is, it's this thing that I think is not quantifiable and it's what separates us from all other living things on this earth. It's it's what allows us to, I, I don't know, have, I don't want to say empathy because I think animals can have empathy, but I don't know, There's there's just this other level. I mean, it's probably because I am a human. So I, I don't understand what I don't understand, right? Like a dog probably doesn't understand what we're doing here. It doesn't understand a TV's on because it's only so finite way it can understand. So yeah. me being a human, I can probably only understand so much or put into words what I think consciousness could be. But 
there's something different in us than there isn't a dog or a lion or a chimpanzee, or there's something yeah. different. And that, that delta of whatever that is. And I don't think it's, it's just a size of your brain or, or I mean, I don't know. It, it's, it's hard. There's something there. There's something okay. that separates us. That's different. That to the point where, you know, we create religion and, or we believe in religion or in a higher power. I mean, like these are things that fill that no gap. Other, yeah. It's like, we're, we're trying to solve for something bigger. And it's, what is that? Maybe the whole idea of consciousness is for, to force us to be curious people and solve for bigger things. And that's what keeps us alive. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's weird. And, and so I let, go down let, these rabbit holes with myself. Like it's, Oh what yeah. Is this? What is <laughs> Me the meaning too. of life? Why are we here? It's, Dude, like, like 55% of my waking hours is like thinking about that. It's probably a problem. <laughs> it's probably yeah, a problem. I mean, yeah. Let me, so let me tell you why I think AI will be able to do that just to like make this a sad outcome potentially is because <laughs> it's because, uh, the laws of the laws of physics allow for consciousness to exist. And if the laws of physics allow for something to exist, this is, this is my interpretation of consciousness. I believe that and, it exists within the laws just, of physics. Yeah. Just, just to. The reason you believe that the laws of physics allow consciousness to exist is because it exists, right? Correct. A hundred percent. Okay. All right. Yeah. We 100%. don't know how to get to that. We don't know how no to get idea. to that, but we know but it it's does like gravity. Exist. We know gravity exists. We don't maybe, you know, we didn't know for a long time what it was or how, but we know it exists. Okay. Yes. Understood. Yes. And and because that's the case, and maybe this this is a very simple way of thinking about it, but because we experience it in some way or have defined it as such, which means that it exists. To me, that tells me that eventually AI or whatever you want to call that thing that will solve for things or problems will solve for that at some point. I don't know if it's 100 years from now. I don't know if it's 100,000 years from now. But because it, ex put it this way, anything that's allowed by the laws of physics will be, will be replicated or solved by this thing, you know, this, mm -hmm. this almost God, right? AI could almost be like, it's analogous for God in, in almost in a sense, if, if you're somebody who's religious, who's offended by that, I'm sorry, but like, that's how I think about it. Right. So, um, so that's why I think in the long term, uh, and again, it's hard to tell if it's a hundred years from now or a million years from now or 50 years from now, but like that to me, I think it's a done deal. It's just a matter of when, because it exists, yeah. because we experience it. And I don't know what the hell is going to happen because of it. And I don't know if I'm wasting, like part of me almost says like, I'm wasting my time thinking about it because it's so existential and it's something that I'm trying so hard to figure out what the outcome is going to be, that it's almost like, what the hell is the, like, why are you doing that? Just live your life, dude. Just like go, go, yeah. you know, go drive your Tesla around or go eat some great food or hang out with your wife or go on vacation. Like what, what's the point of thinking about this? You know? And it's, it's almost like, I don't know. I have no idea why I spend so much time thinking about I, it. You know, I, I think like tying this back to investing in Tesla, I think, yeah. I think that is what, when you're investing in something you need to think about, because look, if you're going to invest in my opinion in like a Coca-Cola or an AT&T or I don't know, a Colgate. All right. Just basic things. You might as well just be an S and P 500, right? If you're mm -hmm. going to, if you're going to put your money out there and risk yeah. it, which investing is risking your hard earned money, yeah. then you might as well be investing it into something that can 10 X can hundred X, right? Something that is in, in the future. 
And so I think that type of thinking is very healthy and needed when investing because, you know, you're talking about potentially anywhere from, I mean, who knows, say 10 years to a thousand years from now. We don't know. But when we look at, take that same type of way of thinking and apply it to something like full self-driving, okay, now we start thinking about what are the implications once there's robo-taxis, right? All of a sudden, our cities change. Maybe we don't need so many parking lots. Maybe we don't need parking garages, mm. right? Maybe people can live further out, right? Like if you live, maybe you live in upstate New York because coming to Manhattan is so easy because you just hop in your robotax and you do half your work in there or you just take a nap in there while you go. I mean, the implications of what this can mean changes, right? From from someone like that who has to go to Manhattan to the the mom who is a night nurse and has two kids and she has to take the bus to work. Well, now she doesn't have to take the bus anymore. She doesn't have to walk out in the rain. She doesn't have to be out there at night unsafe walking to that bus stop. Instead, the robo taxi shows up right in her front doorstep. She goes in, she gets, she goes straight to work safely, not in the rain or anything, right? Like all these things that start having these implications. Like, so what you're talking about, what you're thinking is obviously the bigger scale, but you take that and talk about what could be possible in the next you know, Near let's say term. six months to, you know, five years, like that allows you to really be like, okay, this could have a real profound, there's a real need for this. This solves yeah. a real problem. And that to me is the basis of investing. It's like, are we solving a real problem with this? Right. Or is this like Peloton where it's like, okay, we're solving a problem for a couple months. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it, what has real value. So, so, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm extremely bullish on full self driving. I mean, yeah. I've been bullish on it since 2016, and people thought I was nuts talking about it. But yeah, same. I, I think it's profound. It's extremely profound. Same, dude. That that conversation we had that that sort of towards the end where we talked about the you know what what's the likelihood that full self driving's done you know and and uh, i that that conversation dude thank you so much for giving me that form because it gave me the idea for that uh, one of my videos i published on friday last week like the whole no, like why yeah. full self driving is yeah dude like that was you <laughs> thank you <laughs> that was the conversation so, we had sort of sparked my mind go ahead i was watching that video and i was going to say something else you could add to your thesis yeah. um about it being done could be the fact that now Elon is talking about master plan part three. Master plan part two isn't technically done yet, but why would he go to three unless very true he felt like it's almost, I mean, right. It, it's, it doesn't have to be fully done, but it's like, okay, it's very clear. We're about to be done with this. Like it's time to start planning for the next evolution. Very true. Like that's like, I, I've been wondering about that for a while. It's like, okay, I get, you know, you want to have your, your next goal before your current goal is over. Right. Like when you know, it's, it's almost there, but but from a master plan point of view, like we don't know everything's happening internally, right? We, yeah, we don't yeah, know yeah. the actual rate. I don't even think a lot of Tesla employees know, right? I mean, obviously the FSD team does and they, you know, it seems like stuff like that kind of stays a little tight knit. It does. But yeah, but so so there's something there. Otherwise, why even mention master plan part three? It's right? so true. Like, it makes no sense to me. So it's that, so true. Yeah, so I, I believe, yeah. I, I don't think it's done in the sense like, what and hopefully people understood your video you're saying all this stuff is there it's just a matter of time data and based on what they see it's probably gonna be the end of this year doesn't mean it's done and they're just keeping it from us right (laughs) you know it's like there's still work to be done but it's it's right there right yeah i mean it's it all just kind of adds up i i 100 agree with you and i i 
Really hope yeah. you're right. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think that's a phenomenally good point. And I mean, if you think about like Master Plan Part Two was released in 2016, I believe. Was it? 2016. 20, I think it was 2016. Uh, Let me just verify this. Uh Elon I, Musk Master Plan Part Two. Uh see, part I'm two. not that big of a fanboy. I don't even know this off the top of okay. my head. So 2016. July 20th, 2016. Um Model 3 ramp wasn't even really 18, starting, yeah. you know? So that's like another thing right there. Like Master Plan Part 2 came out uh, right basically a day or a, a few weeks or months before the ramp of Model 3 actually started and it actually became a product. So like the yeah. fact that you say that actually makes a ton of sense because he's done this before. Master Plan yep. Part 3 came out and and it, so the pieces of master plan part three are what? So master pl uh, plan part two. Uh, what did I close my freaking screen? Tesla. Um, so the pieces of master plan part two are integrate energy generation and storage. Done. Expand to cover the major forms of terrestrial transport. Uh, you know this is uh, Cybertruck. Yeah. yeah. And then semi. you got model two. Yeah. Or whatever. Semi. Exactly. Autonomy about to be done sharing length right next to autonomy and yeah that's about it so yeah. so yeah I, I think that makes a ton of sense dude i think that makes a ton of sense dude i, I really do yeah. and I, yeah and i i think more than ever i i think the and i think this is what they've been doing in china i mean in china they hired a design team and everybody was thinking okay the the model two or the twenty five thousand dollar vehicle whatever you want to call it Everybody was saying that, okay, they're going to make one for Europe and one for China, one for the States. And that's why they hired that team in China. But the more and more you think about it, the more and more it makes sense. The China design team has probably been working on this robo-taxi. So, so let me let me throw something out there because I was talking to Dave Lee recently um, and he, I didn't think about this before. He, he sort of put this in my brain that the China, what we think of China, Europe, and like other places there, their $25,000 car, whatever you want to call, that's different than RoboTaxi. So he I agree. thinks- No, I agree. Is, is that what you're, the sort of the train yeah, that you're on? Yeah, what okay, I'm saying okay. is like, I don't, I don't think they've been working, I don't think there will be a $25,000 vehicle. I don't. Okay. I, I don't think they will ever make one. I think the idea of RoboTaxis will make, it, it'll be so cheap to use a RoboTaxi versus paying $25,000 for a vehicle. Yeah, and Tesla will be able to make so much more revenue doing that. Why would they bother? It, if anything, it makes more sense to make the Model Three or Model Y drop down into those categories, right? Over time, with efficiency, right, you can just drop those vehicles to be into that type of category of cost. But I think the Robo Taxi is is going. I mean, Elon even said like we're not even working on it on twenty five thousand dollar vehicle. You know, it's I, I don't think that we're going to have that. The people who who would be in that marketplace for twenty to $25,000 vehicle, I think it'll be to a point where you might as well just hail a robo-taxi. Like, just do that. It's cheaper. And you don't have to worry about maintenance. You don't have to pay for insurance. Uh, it's there whenever you need it. It's not there when you don't need it. You don't have to have a garage. You don't have to worry about a place to charge it. I mean, it just goes on and on. And the majority yeah. of people who are in those low price points are renting an apartment or just out of college or just don't have need for this. I, I could be wrong, but I just, I, I don't... I don't know if I see the need if robo taxis really become a thing. 
I think there might still be a market for a like let's call it the cheaper car, the twenty five thousand. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're a cheaper car that is not robo taxi. So like just basically think of it as a smaller version of a wire or three that's around the twenty five thousand uh, dollar sort of. Uh, Mark, I think there's still a gigantic market for that in countries where uh, full self-driving is going to be either um, limited by governments because of how strict they are, or the driving conditions are literally insane. Impossible. So like, yeah, yeah, like Mumbai, Brazil, exactly. Iran, you know, I've been to Iran twice. Anything in South America. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like where it's just like, it's just like, like, you know, it's a place where everyone's driving 30 miles down the road and there's no crosswalks. And you just start walking across the road because you trust people will evade you. And you just have to be mm-hmm. like, you know, like predictable when you're walking. Like that's sort of that sort of place. Um, I, I could see a $25,000 car, uh, a market for that. So like, I think I think it's two different products. And I think it's um, the robo taxi will probably be like a, it'll probably be like a US thing where they're building out the infrastructure in Austin and they'll, you know, use Austin to sell the the, the actual robo taxi. And that could be very well be the, uh, you're completely avoiding that smaller $25,000 car because A, Americans love bigger cars. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And B, to your point, robo taxi is going to be so cheap. Who cares? Like just freaking hail a robo taxi, right? Um, yeah. But like, China, Europe, India, South America. Like, if you really are trying to uh, push the advent of sustainable vehicles as much as possible, you still want you still want to create some sort of a product that will allow you to um, do that. And I wonder when Elon said like they're not working on a twenty five thousand dollar car. I wonder if that was more like right now, or maybe he was saying that from the context of the United States market. You know, I got yeah. I got to go back and re-listen, but. It, yeah, it was a Q4 earnings to call. Um, okay. The way he said it, and I mean, this doesn't bode in my favor on this on this uh, topic, but the way he said it was, we're not working on it right now, is the mm-hmm. way he said it. Gotcha. He didn't say we're not working on it. Like, it's that's not a thing. He said, we're not working on it right now. Because it was tied know, to like supply chain and the demand for the Model Y and stuff, right? Because it had so much yeah, demand. Yeah, he said, yeah, yeah. yeah and it, like, the, <laughs> yeah, this is ridiculous on this call. Wall Street hated what he said, yet he said the thing. He must have walked away from there thinking, what do I have to say to please these people? Like, what do I have to say to please them? I'm saying, no, we're not making any new segments because we can't even keep up with demand for this higher margin segment. And you're upset. I'm not going to make a cheaper car with less margins, which will create less revenue. You're so right. That's what you're upset. Like, I... When I heard him say that on the call, I started jumping up and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Yeah. I, I want to hear this. I want to make sure that the band was that strong. And it's like, this is great. And the next day, Wall Street hated that. It yeah. blew my mind. I was like, I, I don't I don't know what they want to hear. Yeah. You're so right. And that was almost like, I feel like that was almost like the, you know, in retrospect, maybe that was a signal that we were going to enter this like bear market where everything's going to sell off for no reason all the time anyway. Right. In retrospect, you know? Yeah. Yeah, But we're in there. (laughs) Yeah. We're in there now. We're in there now for sure. Like you're so right though. Like that makes so much sense that, that, that it's, 
like you couldn't have conveyed a more bullish statement we cannot sell enough of the things that make us too much money like so much money yeah. we can't sell enough of them and all we're going to do is focus on selling things that are going to make us a ton of money how dare you <laughs> yeah Ew, you know? <laughs> this is, this is, but it's because that's the model for car companies. It's yeah. what GM, GM, GM's going to have 30 different models. That makes no sense. Ford, yeah. they're going to have all these different models. That makes no sense. It doesn't yeah. make sense. Steve Jobs proved that. He proved that simplifying and working on a few pro, I mean, Tesla has proven that, right? Yeah. You don't need all these different variations. You need a few variations that are really good. Yeah. Right. And then that's all you need. Yeah. And yeah, it's, that's know. why investing in short-term stuff like makes no sense to me because literally the market like the justification you get from so-called experts one day is like well people are buying tesla because they have long-term prospects right and then and then it doesn't go up and then people are like well uh, tesla's selling off because they're not making a lot of money then when they give guidance that um that they're going to be making a ton of money well it's selling off because they don't have good guidance for the next five years i'm like dude like which one is it like, like yeah. which one is it? Like, it makes no sense. You can't just like come up with a different, like the market is the market. The market's going to do a thing. And if it's really that bipolar short term, then like that to me says you should never, ever, 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 ever buy anything in the stock market for anything that's less than a, say a three year or even a five year time horizon. Like yeah. if you're not willing to put your money in there for at least five years, just don't buy the stock. Just don't do it. Do, you know, do you ever, do you ever watch uh, CNBC or Bloomberg or anything? I watch CNBC highlights on YouTube, like for stuff that I'm yeah. like interested in for some reason. And, and if it shows up on my, like, I don't go searching for it, but if it shows up on my homepage and it's a topic that I've been thinking about, then I will click on it. But that's about it. All right. Well, so I watch CNBC. Like, I like it. it's It's my way of getting news that, you know, I actually care about that yeah. isn't too politically orientated. Um, so, so I like it, right? It's, it's financial stuff normally. Um, but my biggest pet peeve, and I don't understand this. First of all, unless like no financial analyst or hedge fund manager or portfolio manager sits there and watch CNBC for advice, they're not sitting there watching like, oh, what do you guys think I should do? Right. So, so their audience is clearly not them. I mean, I'm sure they watch it just to see if you know anything breaking news comes up or anything like that, anything wild, right? Yeah. They watch it for that, right? Just see any crazy updates. Same, same reason we watch Twitter, right? Same thing. But the commentary that comes out of CNBC or Bloomberg or any of them, to your point, where they say, okay, yeah, interest rates are going up. You should start rotating out of your stock portfolios and rotate into bonds uh, for this period of time. And it's like in the next six to eight week horizon, it's like, who are you talking to? Yeah. Who do you think is doing this? You think everyday people are doing this? No, no, they're not. It, it just blows my mind that that's the communication they have. And it's, it, it's so disconnected. Like that, and that's the worst advice you could have. Yeah. That's, that's been proven over and over by by Warren Buffett, by Chamath, by by all these great investors. It's been proven by Elon, right? Like the only public companies he has are the ones he owns, and all he does is hold it. Like it's been proven over time, going in and out, making all these moves. The more you touch your money, the the worse you do. Yeah. Right? It, it this has been proven, but yeah, I don't know it. The stuff, the advice, it just blows my mind how bad it is and i don't know who their audience is maybe they do have an audience i'm just not aware of it but it's crazy well, th to me yeah it's like i feel like humans are always like they're always and this sort of this kind of like goes circles back to our conversation around thinking about like you know 
like why are we alive? Like humans are constantly in search for an answer for things they 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 don't understand yes. or they want yes. to like explain. So perhaps that's the sort of like at the core if we're going to get like a little philosophical about this it's like that is the reason why CNBC even exists is because they want to they're trying to be a, a channel that's conveying information and perhaps part of their programming is centered around trying to offer a solution to a problem like they're trying yeah. to say hey this is what's happening you know while they say hey like don't listen to us and we say this too like don't listen to us you know this is just what i think so it's like that sort of that human that very innate human sort of pursuit for the answer for the truth for the for the thing that is actually causing this thing to happen you know it's got to yeah. be that it has to be that you know hey I, I, not to get off this topic but i have a question for you i was watching yeah. um i was watching a interview with joe justice recently mm. and he talked about how you know at tesla and he, he called it out he saw something at giga berlin but he talked about uh, using DSM, digital self-management, mm. um, at Tesla. D do you know anything about that, or did you guys use any kind of digital self-management? So, so the way the way just to make sure we're both speaking the same language here. So, digital self-management basically means some sort of software that points out the things that are wrong with something, and it guides you to towards a solution, right? Yeah, like the example he was using at Giga Berlin, you could see it on the screen where. It was essentially as the car was going through the final inspection where yeah. the software is pinpointing out, you know, flaws in the paint. And then yeah. that way the human knows where to look at to see, is this something real to see a human eye or not? Instead of the human having to go every square inch around the, a car. Right. right. So, so this software would do that for them and they like, okay, focus here, anything. Okay, good. Move on. Yeah. So I can tell you, I mean. I wasn't in manufacturing, but I can very much tell you that in the realm. So when I worked at Tesla, I worked, I was, um, I was a program manager, but essentially I, I had a team of folks where we used, um, data analytic tools. So basically like a business intelligence suite, like, or, or, or dashboarding tools like Tableau and SQL and all that stuff. We would use data. A lot of our job and my team's work was creating tools where data would highlight something that's going wrong and then ping the people responsible to go diagnose what was going on. So it wasn't so like, but, but it was super granular. It was very granular to the, and I'm trying to be careful <laughs> what I say, cause I still have an NDA. So I want to be very careful oh, how yeah, I say yeah. this, but um, I don't think they'll care. And if they do, Sorry, but I want to come on the channel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Elon, come on. <laughs> Elon's lawyers. Yeah, let's let's come on. Yeah. Um, but but it was it, the way we had it so that the answer was obvious was that we were super granular about that point of failure, and that's one thing that I learned uh, sort of my time at Tesla is that you can become the more data points you have that you can rely on, the more granular you can get about the failure point to the point where you eliminate the the broad nature of that failure. And you can pinpoint directly onto the thing that's going wrong. Like say, like say in a in a process of of say a warehouse, for example, um, the outbound process consists of generating a pick label. You know, generate it, it, it consists of uh, receiving the orders, uh, queuing the orders that are meant to go out that day. Uh, releasing those orders, assigning a picker to it. The picker grabs the right equipment. The equipment goes and gets the product. The product is moved to the outbound floor. 
The product is then QA'd. The product is then packaged and put into a box. The box is staged. This and then the stage box goes into a, goes into a truck. And there's some sort of like sub sub steps within those things that occur um, in those processes, right? So so then my team would sit down and we would try to figure out how do we create tools. Um, and this is just a, one of a million things that we did, but we were part, that was one of the responsibilities we had that, that, that we came up with was how do we create data tools and data visualizations that allow us to really pinpoint directly, directly a point of failure in that chain that's going to remove any doubt as to what's wrong. And then the human would go in and they would verify that's the case. And we had basically a hundred percent success rate, essentially, mm. you know, once, once we developed it fully and and we knew what it was. So I don't know if that's category. I don't know if you would consider that as, as digital self-management, but, but we did invest a lot of time in utilizing data to, and in this case, like a visual thing where it tells you that things are wrong is essentially yeah. that you're just using data from a camera that tells you where the things are wrong. For us, it was, we were using data in software that, that did that. But I think that's, I don't know if that's super rare. I think some companies do do that. It's just, it's just, I think the granularity of our approach was perhaps um, what set us apart and why we were, and, and and the team that we built around it and the importance of that process, I think what is what sort of sets Tesla apart because that becomes paramount. Like that becomes paramount and you create uh, a leadership structure and an accountability structure where if you ignore that step, like we're going to, like it's punishable. Like, hey dude, like this is part of the job. Like you can't just ignore this. And if, and if, and if you do, you know, you get written up or whatever, whatever the step is for that. So perhaps that's what sets yeah. us apart from other folks or set them apart from other folks. But if that's D uh, DSM, then, then yes, we did. But I wasn't super exposed to the manufacturing side, but we, we built those tools for, for service. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a game changer. It really was. Yeah, that's that's uh that's fascinating. Yeah. So when Joe just was talking about this, I I, I start to really find it interesting because mm -hmm. I've worked at a lot of companies now, and it seems like the company I work for now is definitely, and it's probably the Silicon Valley culture is definitely one of the is is the only company I've ever worked for where they were very proactive at creating internal new software to try to have better processes, right? Yeah. Or, I mean, for example, like, let's say, you know, you're using Salesforce. All right. Well, can we find, yeah, maybe we won't be as great as Salesforce is for every single person, but maybe, which, yeah, I'm not a big Salesforce fan. Yeah, uh, same. <laughs> but may, maybe 90% of the value, four or 5% of the cost. Yeah. It's yeah. like, do I need everything or can I make it very nuanced specific for what we do? Right. Because if I can do that, then it's going to be a much more valuable tool. And the company I, I work at, I mean, we we build a lot of these tools internally that are specific towards what we do and our workflows. And when the DSM, the digital self-management, when I was seeing that, I was like, man, like until I worked for a software company, I never saw any engineering companies doing this, right? The engineering companies would have, yeah, they'd have tools. They have, you know, whether it's for safety tools or to create like job safety analysis or to you know, create certain processes or permits or or certain flows of how to do something. But once that's in place, all right, well, this is our procedure. Learn our procedure. That's it. Yeah. Like there's no iterate on the procedure. If you were to sit there and think like, hey, what if we did did it like this? Like I remember at one point, like there's like to do a really big working out on, on these vessels, you're sitting there on a ticking time bomb. That's what you're doing. 
yeah. right? You're literally on a bomb. And whenever you do certain procedures, like you have to get approvals from like certain different people to let certain departments know what you're doing. And you might have to go find them. And I just a simple suggestion. I remember telling them, hey, what if we like just all had iPads and then you could just send it to the given party so they can just sign it and they're aware of it instead of one individual having to do all this labor's work going all around finding all these people. Like that just seems so inefficient. Yeah. But no, this was our process. This is our procedure. And it just, it like, and I get it. I get like, you have things, it works. Why, 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 why fix it if it's already working? Yeah. But that, that, that's, I think that's one of the, as an engineer, one of the things that just, it makes you just, you know, drool at Tesla or SpaceX and the things Elon says, like, oh my God, like you're yeah. telling us we can try something to make it better. And if it fails, okay, well, it's fine. At least you tried. Yeah. yeah. Dude, dude, I, I it's, but, it's you're you've hit the nail on the head as to why Tesla is miles um, uh, ahead of everybody else, especially in legacy auto is. And the yeah. reason why they can do that. And I saw this firsthand, you know, um, is that they never, ever, ever rely on third parties or outside forces to come up with the optimal solution because they've surrounded that company with the best talent on planet Earth and the best problem solvers on planet Earth. And when you have that, you can build anything. And when you've built a culture that says your primary thing is to innovate, then you innovate at everything. And, and it doesn't matter how small it is. It doesn't matter what the, it doesn't matter if it's a piece for a car or a software that's going to allow you to uh, digitally self-manage or it's a tool for HR or it's a picking process or it's the way you package something or it's the way you clean your floors or how you approach staff management or how you mentor people. like. The, the innovation is not just engineering innovation, it's just innovation on how to run a business, period. Yeah. Period. That is, and, and that culture is so embedded everywhere that the, the get better every day applies to every single person. And when you have 110,000 people that are essentially part of your army, what ends up happening is that you have 110,000 people that are constantly trying to find a better solution for whatever they're working on. You know, yeah. um, and that's just that to me sounds like such a different. I haven't worked at every company on planet Earth. OK, I haven't worked. I've worked at maybe four companies, five companies total in my in my career. But I've talked to many people that have worked at other places and I've seen enough variety to know that what Tesla is doing is very, very unique. Give me one second. This freaking thing's flashing because it's running out of battery. Oh, look, orange no, background. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it's. Um, it, that is why they are set apart so much yeah. from everybody else. And, and I think ultimately, ultimately, if we, if we get every company to work this way, like even 20% of, of this sort of style of, of, of operation, especially the larger companies, like productivity and the things that we make as a species will tenfold, <laughs> will tenfold mm -hmm. because that's how, you, that's how you get to a point where you're constantly coming out with better stuff over time and people are going to love you for it because they're going to see, wow, this thing, it's a service, whatever it is. People are going to yeah. fall in love with you as a company, be like, oh my God, you guys are constantly working on making stuff better. That is the key, that is the key thing. They never rely on third parties. There's no freaking 
Salesforce. There's no like uh, consultants. There's nobody coming in and saying, hey, this is how you should work on this. Or or there's never a leadership group that's going to go out to try to get help from a different company. It's like, okay, I literally have the best possible talent uh, working with me. Let's sit down and just figure this out. None of us know how to do it. Okay, then reach out to somebody on Teams that knows how to do it and then ask them to teach you or say, hey, do you have any bandwidth available or try to make a justification that the thing that you're working on is going to save the company X number of dollars or is going to make something X times better and that your help is your help is critical. So I need your help. You know, you try to make you almost like haggling for people's times sometimes. That's like that's part of the art of working at Tesla as well. You got to know how to how to haggle for people's times so you can work on the stuff that you feel is most important and that's an art unto itself you know um yeah i it's crazy just this is and i i know like so i know we're talking about this and i'm sure people are listening to i mean hopefully people are still still listen to us uh, by now yes, but um all five like, of people <laughs> we're, we're talking about, yeah we're talking about this but like actually think about this like think think deeply about this your current job most most people i, I would wager if you work at Walmart, if you work at McDonald's, if you work for Geico, if you work for, I don't know, NASA, I don't care. You have certain procedures that you have to do things, and this is the way to do it. And your job is to learn those procedures, obey, and then do your regular job. But at Tesla, they give you a key and say, no, 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 no. Part of your job is to unlock this door, and you must always be thinking about ways to improve things. Yeah. Other jobs don't do that. They don't make you always think, how can we improve? How can we improve? How can we improve? And the reason I, I even talk about like Walmart or McDonald's is because, and I didn't, I wouldn't have known this if I didn't watch uh, one of your videos the other day, the janitor that worked wh- yeah. wherever you work, that person <laughs> innovated because that door was said to be open. Like, but this is a thing. Now you have a whole company of all these people who are being told you must be trying to improve. You must be trying to iterate and find things to be better. No other company does that. So imagine all these people intentionally, everything they do, They now that you're, you're on YouTube, you ever watch TV and you, and you start to think like, oh, I see how they're editing certain things. Yeah, or, dude. You know, yes. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's that. It's now because you've unlocked or opened that door in your mind, it's the same thing. Now, everybody in this company has opened that door in their mind. Now, they're always looking for ways to improve. Yeah. You don't have that in other companies. In other companies, I have my procedures. I have my job. I'll do my job. I'll try to do my job really well. But I'm not thinking like, oh, man, it's just so powerful. Like that's, is. That is, I, I don't even think that's so underappreciated, I think. It's, and think of how, how many innovations have come out of that, you know, by accident, maybe. I mean, who, who, who knows? I mean, how do yeah. you quantify many. that? But many. It's it's unreal but, to me. But think about but think about the core element that allows you to have that sort of culture. The the single thing that allows you to have that sort of culture is trust in your people. Trust. Yeah. Trust. And uh, I don't know if it's an American thing or whatever, but like the way businesses are built, especially the bigger they grow, is that that trust in the individual becomes eroded and they instead they are trying their best to give you a set number of steps to take on a daily basis so you don't accidentally break something or you don't do something that's somehow going to harm the company. And then that becomes priority number one for whoever you hire. There might be very small exceptions for people say, you know, that's why people say it's outside of my pay grade or it's this is, you know, I'm not, I'm not, 
I, they don't pay me enough to do this is because maybe when it comes to solving problems and innovating, we've somehow as a culture have become conditioned or have accepted the fact that if we want to innovate and do something better, that it's reserved for the top of the ladder. That thinking critically and thinking and using your imagination and being innovative about solving problems is not your job. It's someone else's job because you don't get paid enough for it, you know? And yeah. I, I, I kind of understand for those that say like, you know, well, they're not paying me to problem solve. I was like, okay, cool. But, but here's where Tesla and SpaceX and Elon's companies shine is that at least for, from my experience, people aren't so much worried about how much money they get paid. They're doing it because they know it's important. It's part of the mission. And sort of, and so that that cultural aspect of you I'm just working gave me goosebumps. Okay. You literally just gave me goosebumps. Like seriously, like as an engineer, like the things you're saying, it's like I have goosebumps. Sorry, yeah. I don't mean to interrupt you. No, like, you're good, dude. I mean, it's I, I get real it. Real time, it, like that's that's why that's why it's that's why that those companies are so inspiring. That's why Elon as a leader, leader has so much su such big of a following. That's why those companies are so freaking successful. Is because it's not about the money. It's not about the money, yeah. it's about the mission. And then when you're telling those people that you can do anything that, that's required to make something better, you have magic. Magic mm -hmm. happens, okay? And, and it's, it's simple. It's such a simple formula, but it requires trust and it requires your company to be very honest about having a mission that's important and the leadership, the leadership have to walk the walk. They can't just talk the talk. So if like if, if I were to give advice to companies to become like like a Tesla, that's it. Like walk, like set a mission that's actually important for humanity. Walk the walk as you talk it, okay? And then uh, enable your people. Trust your people. Trust everyone you you hire, and you ask them to get better every single day, and you hold them accountable to it. And then you'll have the company. You'll have your company will will have magic happen, okay? But that's yeah. so much harder said than done, especially that's as you scary. grow. It's scary. It's scary because it goes back to what we were talking about before. There's a chance for failure. Exactly. We don't like to fail. Exactly. Right. So exactly. Let me. So I just pulled up a, a tweet from Elon, where very interesting to hear the the replies on this tweet. But I, I'm curious to hear your interpretation of or your thoughts on it. Okay. He said, "I strongly believe that all managers in a technical area must be mm. technically excellent." Managers in software must write great software, or it's like being a cavalry captain who can't ride a horse. Now, a lot of people seem to take umbrage with this, saying you don't need to know how to do certain things to be a good manager. That's you're 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 leading people and you're a people leader and all this stuff. But so, I mean, there's a lot of comments about that that I, was, I found interesting. But what are your thoughts on that working at Tesla? I'll give you my thoughts working in a few different companies on this. Yeah. So. Uh... <laughs> so those that don't agree with that statement, those that don't agree with that statement are within the confines of a company or culture where um, perhaps you're not you're not really filled with problem solvers. And let, let me just let me just uh, so I 100% agree with the fact that you can have a leadership structure. There are exceptions to this rule. Let's just say there are people that can lead teams where they don't have to be technically proficient in that field, but they're good at inspiring and they're good at at hooking up the right people with the right person, you know, and 
so on and so forth. I get it. Like there are those people. But here's the deal. If you want to get to a point like a Tesla or a company that is the best at what they do, if you have a leader that's technically proficient and is also good at inspiring and is good at hooking up people with the right teams and it's good at mentoring and it's good at just connecting with their team, having that technical knowledge. And then when the team comes to you and they know their leader or boss can help them with a solution and they can see it and it turns out to be a good answer and it's something that actually helps them, that is trust that's a built that can never be broken. And that yeah. variable of trust, in my opinion, is by far the most important one to lead a team. And so if you if you maximize your chances to build trust, then you have the ability to make your team perform at the highest level. And having technical know-how for that specific team that you're leading is incredibly important to, uh, to maximize that trust. And so I 100% agree with him. I understand that there are exceptions to the rule potentially in some companies, but those companies aren't operating at 100%. They're operating at like 75%. Okay, so if you're okay with your company operating at 75%, sure, have leadership that doesn't that that's doesn't um, uh, have that technical know-how, but just know that if they did, if they did, you would be going at 100%. Okay, that's my answer. Yeah, but, yeah. So I agree with what a lot of people are saying that you don't need to be technically maybe excellent or literate to be a good leader. Mm -hmm. when it comes to the soft skills, right? To, to, for the soft skills to be compassionate, to help people get on with their career and all that, you don't need that, right? I mean, these are just soft skills that people have or don't have. And these are very important things to have as a leader, as a manager. But there's two sides to every coin. The other side that I believe strongly is that you must have the technical know-how. You must be somebody that people can look up to and look for guidance or at least, and I have this all the time, right? I've had several managers in my time and there's nothing more frustrating than getting a manager who was just a manager somewhere else and they aren't fresh out of doing whatever I do. And if I have an issue or something, I don't go to them. I find another yeah. peer. Exactly. Because I, I can't rely on them. Sure. If I want a pay raise, if I want a, a promotion, if I want help navigating this HR kind of nonsense, all right, yeah, I'll go to the manager because they got yeah. the soft skills and yeah. you know they can talk to people. But now I have to go elsewhere to help with that. And so it was just very surprising to see people talk about this. And I think what Elon said is right. And maybe Elon should, have, I, I, in my opinion, should also put in there, right? You have to be a people leader as well by like a, a good manager. If you want to leave my team and I'm, I'm your manager. Okay. How can I help you get to where you want to get to? I'm not going to sit there and say, Hey, no, now nah, we're not going to let you move to this other team. Cause I want you on my team. Yeah. Like th that's not right. So you need to have that empathy and those soft skills. And it was just interesting to see people rebut to this because I'm telling you, I, I work in a highly technical role and there's nothing more upsetting and annoying when you have a manager who doesn't understand what you're doing, right? Yes, they're a great individual and they have the great soft skills and all that. But guess how often I need those skills? Very once a year, maybe. Yep. The technical skills when I run into a hurdle or I just need to talk something out with someone. Yep. Yeah. That'd be great to have a manager who can just, you know, tell me stuff and give me feedback or, right. So I don't yep. know, but maybe you're for other positions, right. other jobs, it's fine. W within an engineering role, no, I need someone technical. 
Uh, you know, otherwise I'm just going elsewhere to find those answers. And then what's the point of me having this manager? Exactly. It's the purpose. It's let me give you middle management. Let me give you a, a even a, a stronger argument um, for for that when it comes to being the manager. Okay, if you know, I've I've been a leader for 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 most of my career, so I've I've led teams. Okay, if you're not technically proficient and your team comes back and says like this is going to take two weeks or it's hard to do or whatever, you can't you can't call bullshit on them if they're trying to milk your inability and your 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 lack of technical knowledge because you will have teams sometimes that were like well my boss knows that you know he's not technically proficient so if he asked me to do something and i say it's going to take two weeks but it's really going to take me two hours i can get away with it because my boss doesn't know any better so what does that do for the speed of innovation it kills it it destroys it so if you don't have a manager that's technically proficient you don't actually have a way to call bullshit when the team is doing something that is they're trying to take advantage of the situation okay and 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 this is sort of counter to the thing of like just trust your people to go out and do things but guess what if you create an environment where you have a, a, a very talented team that is going to run into issues and it can't rely on that manager, okay? Two things are going to happen. They're going to milk the fuck out of the job or they're going to stop trusting you and they're going to go to somebody else for the help and you lose the ability to actually motivate your team and to set proper guidelines for things that need to get done. You just lose the ability. And maybe some companies, it's not super drastic, but it's not. It's it's a suboptimal answer to having a, a, a team that is firing at all cylinders. Managers should 100% be technically proficient. Should 100%. If you want your company to run at 100%, your managers have to be technically proficient. They have to be, especially, especially if you work in a, in, in a field where that technical proficiency is the bread and butter of your company. There's no ifs, there's, there's no, no other answer. Okay. Otherwise you are, you are, you are answering, you're saying that I'm okay not being the best. And if that's it, fine. Maybe, maybe you just want to carve out a part of the market that's going to allow you to make some profit and maybe that's what you want to do. Great. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if you're coming from the, from the perspective of you're trying to run at your best, which my brain, that's how it works, is like, mm -hmm. I don't understand why anybody would want to do anything unless they want to do it at the best. Being technically proficient is a, is a must. Is a must. It has to happen. Yeah. I, I'll give you a, a quick story. Um, yeah. So before I had the job I'm currently at, I, I was also a manager of people. So it was still, it dealt with ships, but I, so the way the structure worked is I was the technical superintendent and then underneath me, I had two vessels I managed and each vessel had about 15 engineers. And mm -hmm. within those vessels, you have a chief engineer. That's the highest level engineer on that vessel. And so they both reported to me, right? They all reported to me, but they were the, you know, they're the main guys. And we had a, a audit um, where we had Coast Guard, we had um, a, a organization called DNV that came out and we needed to do some tests, right? These are just basic annual tests you do. And of course, I'm there to make sure it goes smoothly, you know, for my guys and just, just to make sure everything goes. And one of the tests you have to do is you have to test your emergency generator. So the idea is if this is out in the middle of nowhere, and this actually happened to us too in Singapore, you black out, this emergency generator is there to give you some very like emergency steering ability. So you don't just go into another ship or cause accident or whatever. And so we do these tests and 
I had the chief engineer there with us and I wanted, I, I asked him to go ahead and put the emergency generator on the actual, uh, on the actual bus on, on the main bus. And he couldn't do it. He could not, he had no idea how to do it. He, he kept saying, sitting there trying to figure out how to do it. He's like, Oh yeah, I always have the, the, the first engineer do this. I don't ever really do this. And I'm sitting there watching now I'm his manager. I went ahead and said, I got it. And I put it on the bus. We got through the audit and everything. This is the only time I've ever had to fire anyone. And hopefully I don't ever have to do it again. Yeah. I did sit down with him and tell him how one, that was just embarrassing to begin with. And he should be embarrassed about that. But two, every day that he did not know how to do this, he put everybody's life at risk on that vessel. And him being the manager of all the engineers on there, he needed to know how to do this. This is a very technical job and he had to do it. Worst case scenario, lives are lost. All right. Maybe not so bad. We get a, a huge fine from the Coast Guard for not knowing how to do this. Right. And this is the chief engineer. Yeah, that's so crazy. It was awkward. I, I had to let him go right there. It was the only time. I mean, I was literally like shaking, like trying to talk to him and like, you yeah. know, explain the rationale. It's like, look, you left me no choice here. Yeah. Like, this is basic stuff that you should know. This is your vessel. You're on this every single day. Yeah. But, but yeah, it, I, yeah, I feel very strongly about people being technical. It's it's important. It's yeah. important. And me, I, I was barely ever on that vessel, but I knew how to do it. I just don't and know how you hire. I, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't no, I was just going to say, it's just, that's how important these things are. Is yeah. What I was going to say. No, I, I just don't know how you hire. I don't know how you hire the right talent unless you're, you're, you know what you're talking about. Well, like, how do you hire the right want, talent? Want me to bring this home to Tesla? Yes, please. <laughs> so the problem with this world I worked in is that everybody's part of a union. Uh, and so when everybody's part of a union, they're very, very protected. Yeah. Supposedly. Yeah. And the mindset with a lot of these people, I'm not saying it's like this with all unions, with UAW or the airlines or doctor. Like, I don't know. All I can speak is what I know. And in my experience, the problem was a lot of people had the attitude of, oh, I don't work for company X. I work for the union. Right. And that mentality just creates this, this you know, lack of trust between the yep. two. Because yep. what they're getting preached on by the union, and I, I've seen this firsthand, right? I, I used to work part of a union. So I'm speaking from experience here, not from, you know, some some high ivory tower ranks like that. Yeah. What they would tell us is that the union has their best interests. The company has the company's best interests. And whatever the company tells you they're trying to do, you should always look at it with the eye of skepticism. Yeah. And, and that was the philosophy. I worked for three different unions. They were all the exact same way. Yeah. And, and that's when I ended up leaving and going into working in the oil world, which does not use unions at all, as ironic as that is with GM and Ford and all them. But, yeah. but yeah, I, I think it, it's why I have such a problem with the idea of unions, uh, especially when it comes to like UAW and all that. It's enforcing companies like, I mean, I don't know if you saw what happened with Amazon, Staten Island, all that, yep. but yep. one Amazon factory union, one not. It's 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 almost comical. You can't make these yeah. things up. But yeah, yeah, the, I don't know. I, good. Oh, I was I just have such a strong feeling uh, about this. I I think unions are were remarkable. They needed to happen. Yeah. Right. But much like 
COVID changed the era of having to be in office all the time. Well, now we don't need to be in office all the time. And now we don't need unions anymore. Companies right. try to do what's right by their employees now, or they won't get talent. Exactly. Unions did their job. It's time to take a step back, in my opinion. Yeah. And same thing goes for, yeah. So that's that's my thought on that. The, the way I think about unions is unions are the result of a poorly run company. That's that's literally the that's the only way I see unions as, and, I, and I'm not saying they're good or bad. Unions are are there because a company hasn't done right by their employees to take care of them in some way or give them some sort of environment where they felt like they were either being treated right or tr safely or whatever you want to call it, and so that workforce. Imagine imagine the sort of. Um, Imagine the sort of environment that has to happen for a union vote to even exist, you know, like mm -hmm. or, or even for a for an environment where a union gets implemented, no less. Right. Is that the people working there didn't even bother or didn't want to look for a different job and they wanted to use this this environment, OK, to create a union so they can continue working there while being treated fairly. That's, that's sort of the thought process there. So you got to think about yeah. what kind of environment has to be there for that sort of thing to happen. If people are willing to stay there and put in the effort to create a union, okay, you, you are probably doing something right in a sense. You're offering something right, but you're, you're missing a, a key thing that's incentivizing people to go in and call for a union. But the problem with unions, in my opinion, is that unions are literally the worst case scenario for a company that's trying to innovate or do something better. Because in, in my opinion, union environments are, it's so difficult to create a, an environment where people are, are constantly um, encouraged to do something better or do something differently because it breaks, it breaks any sort of tracking or system that you can put in place that says, hey, this person is doing a good job or this person is being treated uh, paid fairly or whatever because doing that requires some sort of stepping out of your boundaries, stepping out of your comfort zone, stepping out of your role and try shit. And and yeah. fail and fail. I, I, you tell me, but I feel like I feel like those two worlds do not combine. Like a, a company no, that wants I, to innovate and a union just does, they don't drive. They don't drive. I, I don't think they do at all. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the reason there's a lot of, in my experience, the reason a lot of companies use union labor is, to your point, I, I don't think they're good companies. Uh, it's why it's honestly why I say this. Again, I, I could be completely wrong. It's just my opinion. So don't take it for anything other than my opinion. But it's why I think GM and Ford are not places anybody wants to work for. And GM and Ford don't care about hiring good labor because everywhere I've been to, every company I've ever worked that used unions, were using unions so that they didn't have to pay people a certain thing or they didn't want to have to worry about the taxes or the healthcare or, or something, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted to be a, a smaller company for a lot of tax benefits where they just had these core group of people and then they just outsource as contractors for their employees. And from a balance sheet statement from a, a company that functions a certain way, it makes a lot of sense on paper, but there's a lot of cost to it. You, you don't have people who are as passionate about the company. You don't have people who are, are thinking about how can we sit? I mean, we talk about it all the time internally within my company, uh, our expense reports. They say, Hey, just your, your, your mindset, like we're not gonna put rules around your spending. Just pretend it's your own money. Yeah. That's it. Right. Just do the right thing. 
like trust, like you're talking about. Like this, I this is why I love my company so much. The culture is just amazing, but there's nice. a huge trust there. And I've seen with other companies, it just doesn't exist there. And yeah, for for innovation, for moving faster, for for creating a culture, I think unions tend to inhibit people from having this culture. I mean, like just look at Tesla Rodeo, right? And then yeah. did you see the lightning unveil? It's like they were paid to be there. I know. It's like they were forced to sit there. It's like this is culture you see this this is the the juxtaposition between good culture and forced culture right <laughs> you know it's it's very very prevalent yeah but then the the other side of that too is like i'm trying to think like what is 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 it do the laws of physics prevent us from having 100% of the companies being um a place where everyone is very happy to work at, will always try to do something better and are being treated fairly, you know? Like, is that is that a possible outcome here? And I don't know why, I don't know why it wouldn't be. It's just that I don't think we've sat down as a society and a civilization and actually very honestly talked about why people work in the first place. Why do people yeah. work in the first place, you know? How many jobs have you had in the past, and you or whoever else is listening to this, this is almost like a ask yourself this question. How many jobs have you had in the past where you're just working there for the paycheck? Where you're just going there to make money? You know, where you're just like not super passionate about the company and you're just like, I need, I have to do this because I want to live my life in a specific way. I'm not going to work because I enjoy what I do necessarily, yeah. or I enjoy the people that I work with. I'm going to work because I'm trying to get that money. So when I go home, I can go out, I can buy this, I can do that, I can go on this trip, right? And and what percentage of work out there is... Um, is is this sort of relationship either because the people don't have a company that is worth a shit to work for, or we have a population that is somehow okay with that sort of thing where, where there isn't, you know, their passions are not in that work. But then the counter to that is like, okay, so how do we create an environment for the people that are not they don't, they don't like to work for those companies or they view that as, as, as wrong. How, how do we create a society where those people uh, are either incentivized or land in their place where they yeah. don't have to work at a company that sucks or they view that it sucks and they're just working there for the paycheck, which basically kills innovation for that company completely if you have a staff like that. And I, and I want to be very clear here. I'm not saying that these people are bad people or are somehow lazy. This is not at all what I'm saying. I there is there is a mismatch of people wanting to do something that they believe in and companies that facilitate that environment that that is yeah. the the huge failure here from a not even failure we haven't gotten to that point yet and what could argue is that we're on the path there because to your point if you go back 100 years when you had these companies where unions literally had to exist because people were literally like the, the working environments were brutal they barely got paid anything they weren't taken care of unions had to exist because of most work was terrible but now yep. are we learning as a society to create more companies where that that alignment of passion is aligned between employee call it and company and where union is not necessary and then you maximize uh, the innovation of the company and you maximize the happiness of the person you know and how do we get there like what is the path to get there you know 
Um, and and yeah. there's a lot of like companies out there that, that, you know, that's why consultants exist. That's why you have yeah. KPMG or, or uh, whoever, you know, you have Accenture and all these different companies exist because they're trying to help companies get to a certain point where either they're trying to maximizing profit or it's trying to create a certain culture. That's why these companies exist. But these companies don't really do that. They're, they exist. Their profit motivation is I want people to pay me so that I can go in there, hand off something, and then it's up to them to put it in place, you know? And if you're company culture needs a, if your company's is in a position where they need to hire a consultant to help you do something better, what makes you think that once they give you that, you're going to be able to execute that at a high level? You don't have the right structure to, to have that in the first place. I'm rambling now, but like, it's like, no, yeah, it's, no, I agree with everything. You're it's saying. such yeah. a core thing in society. And like how many people are having these conversations, you know, and then we live in an environment now where it, like you and I talking about unions, there was a one second in my head where I'm like, oh, what are people going to think of me when I'm talking about unions? this way? Am I going to have a mob on social media? But now, because of the whole Twitter thing that's happening with free speech, I'm empowered to say, fuck that. I don't really care what they think. I'm just going to be honest about what what are the things that we have to work on? Like, it, yeah. do, we, do we also need an environment where we can actually sit down and talk about these things? They're freaking vital to our society. They're so important. They're so important, you know? Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but you also got to think... Um, Whenever we had unions for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. They existed for a reason and it was to benefit the individual. Yes. And the real, the real mission of unions should have been to make sure companies treat employees correctly, right? But it's kind of gotten a little perverted in the way things have changed. Companies now do tend to do right by their employees. Right, they tend to. Not saying all do, most do. They're trending towards that direction as a whole. Yes. But the problem is, at what point, if ever, do certain unions say, okay, mission accomplished, we're done, we can go away. Well, that won't happen because the leaders of these unions get paid a lot of money. And so now they have an incentive that has done a 180 and it's to keep, keep these things separated. And so yeah. it's almost like now their motive is, I mean, man, I talk about animal farm reference here, right? I mean, it's, it's exactly what it is, right? It's this idea of like, okay, yeah, we are here for the people, but now that the people may not need us, okay, well, now we need to make sure that we preserve ourselves and what we yeah. do and our organization. And, and that's the thing. I mean, it's, again, you can always say tie pretty much everything back to Elon, but when he talks about how certain laws need to eventually have a, a you know, finite time and they move on, right? We need to be able to get rid of laws just as fast as we put them in place. Yeah. Well, same thing with the unions. You had a goal. Once you achieve your goal, if it really was for the people, ideally, once you reach that goal, you should go away, yeah. right? Because mission accomplished. Yeah. But does that happen? Who knows? I mean, again, I'm not saying that we're quite there. I, I would say we're not there if Ford and GM are still use, using union labor. To me, that, that signifies, well, you're not doing a good job as a company. Right. You're not providing what your employees need. And it's what's even more interesting, going back to the model, like I was talking about before, you know, Jim Farley isn't part of a union. Jim Farley works for Ford. Right. So why can't these other workers work for Ford? Why do they right. have to be with the union, right? What's like, it's just, yeah, that's my problem yeah. with it. But to, to answer the question you asked before, right? I, I did ask myself just now. I don't think, I think every company I've ever started working at I loved. 
absolutely loved. But over time, I've seen it become, I'm just here for a paycheck. Mm. And when I get to that point, that's when I go on to the next company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's many different reasons that happens. It can be mm-hmm. culture. It can be new new management. It can be... Your own interests could have changed too, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. exactly. So there's only two companies I've ever worked for that that didn't happen. The one I'm currently at now, and then the other one, which arguably, and nothing against my current employer, is probably the best company I've ever worked for. It was when I was in high school. It's this little small mom and pop shop called Beach House Coffee and Ice Cream. And damn, if I didn't love working there every minute of the day. That's awesome. Free ice cream, free coffee. I would have still been working there probably if I didn't go off to college. <laughs> Best job I ever had in my life. But That's yeah. because they took, a good, they took good care of you and they probably gave you a work environment where you could be your best self, right? You could like do the it things like that... It was like awesome. family. It was like family. Yeah. That's uh, it, awesome. It was man. absolutely amazing. What was the name hey, of the shop again? Beach House Coffee and Ice Cream. And where it's, is this uh, at? Over, so I grew up uh, over in Cape Canaveral. Okay. Um, so, well, just south there, Sally Beach. So it's yeah. like, it's, this is like, it's one long island. So you have like, you have Cape Canaveral and then two miles south of Cape Canaveral, you have Cocoa Beach. Two okay. miles south of that is Satellite Beach. So I grew up in Satellite Beach. Gotcha. So if, if you know the gotcha. area, that, that's okay. where. Make sure you but, go check um, it out. We're over two hours, dude. Oh, <laughs> you do this again. We're right, over two hours, yeah. Do <laughs> you have anywhere to go? Because I just want to talk about one more thing with you. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. I just want to be respectful sure? of your time. But yeah, go for it. Uh, oh, yeah. No, man, I, I talk. <laughs> um, <Me too. laughs> yeah, it's the Hispanic in me. Like I can just talk all day. Um, <laughs> yeah, go for it. So, yeah. So, all right. So, I want to talk about FSD before this new release comes out. Yeah. So, um, so let me just read what Elon wrote. He wrote, next release 1012 is another step towards all neural nets using surround video and uh, reconciling output to a unified vector space for control code. Mm-hmm. Improves complex inter- intersections in heavy traffic, many upgrades to core code. I think that's very important. So, mm. so taking longer to debug issues, probably Wednesday, Thursday release. So could be tomorrow, could be the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, based on that, is there anything that you're looking for before 10.12 comes out that you, you expect might change or does any of that ring as, as I don't know, important for, for what you're looking at for being within Austin and the, yeah. the challenges you've had there? Yeah, for sure. The, so the 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 intersection complexity. So Austin, at least the area that I live in, I live in sort of the metro, like the greater metro area. I'm about 40 minutes from downtown Austin. There is a gigantic number of unprotected left turns, doubles, two lane roads with a bypass in the middle. Like with like a, it's it's so mm-hmm. like it's it's two, you know, you got two lanes. Then you got an area where people can sort of hang out to try and U turn, or you know, it has a yield there. And then there's another two lanes. Okay, and so when you're on a road where it's just trying to make a left turn on that, it's freaking brutal. And sometimes you have like a lot of traffic, or you have a lot of uh, objects that are blocking your view and whatnot. Um, a lot of the area where I live in is, is that, and the car is always so apprehensive going through that. And it, and it just can never make the right decision because it's, it's first priority is safety. 
And that is like, I'm nervous making those left turns, dude. Cause I'm like, oh my God, what if I'm misjudging how fast this person's going? Are they in the right lane or the left lane? Uh, if I'm going to wait here, I'm going to wait for literally five hours and I don't have five hours to wait. So I gotta, I gotta freaking make a decision here. So I'm curious to see how that's going to behave in those situations, because those, in my opinion, those are by far the most challenging driving situations that I'm in, in this area It's those unprotected left turns with that bypass in the middle. And there's at the two lane freaking freaking thing on, on both sides and the traffic's going 65 miles an hour speed limit which yeah. is really going like 80 right so um yeah so so i'm curious to see how that works i i'm 100 sure that they'll solve it at some point what's interesting about full self-driving is that uh full self-driving seems to make uh the, the the correct steering decisions almost always but it's the throttle input that makes the car behave in an inhuman manner because it sometimes gets overprotective or too hesitant or sometimes it's just jarring so yeah. it's that freaking so, accelerator input you know so th this is exactly what I, I want to talk to you before uh this release comes out because i i want to i want to say this to you my interpretation of this and then yeah. see if you notice this whenever you eventually get the update hopefully okay. tomorrow <laughs> yeah so when i read this him say, uh, Elon saying a step towards all neural nets using surround video and reconciling output to a unified vector space of control code. So again, I'm, I'm interpreting, so I don't know if this is exactly what he's saying, but what I understand this to mean is in the last release, they, they essentially went away from choosing each pixel or, or voxel. So a volumetric pixel and determining what it is in order to stitch a picture, right? So they went away from that for, for as far as lane lines, and then they went ahead and used surround video for that, based on my understanding. And so that was the first time they did that. And I think Andre Kapasi talked about that was gonna be his most exciting feature, I, I think. Don't quote me on that. He might've talked about something else. But essentially going away from the bag of points, which is what the pixels are, just a bag of points, right? If you had a, a grid box and each one is a point, to just this whole image. And so, and that's why they're labeling now in surround video, right? So, okay, so that's where that is. But that was only used for one, one scenario. And so now Elon's in here saying that another step towards neural nets using surround video, it seems like more of the neural nets, more of the transformers within FSD is going to be using the surround video. So, so why is that important? So everything you just said, it's important because if I think of them, for us, it's, it's inconceivable the amount of time it takes to look all these pixels and for it to make a decision. What is this? What is this not? But for full self-driving that every, every bit of time you lose there, it adds what people call jitter or that hesitation. Mm. So the more the neural nets go to the surround view for labeling, making decisions, I think that's where the smoothest, smoothest will start to come out. And so when I read this, I got really excited about that. Because I think what they're doing here is now they're going to be doing more and more in surround video, which should alleviate some of the jitter and should make things a lot more smoothly. Um, it, I think. I, I Don't quote me on this, but I, I did make a reference to this. And um, I think Dr. Know-It-All, which I'm assuming some of you have seen his channel, good stuff. He, This is actually what he does as a professor, I believe. But he, he seemed to agree with me that I'm interpreting this the right way. So, yeah. so if that's the case, like that's really exciting. I'm really curious based on your experience and the things you see, if yeah. that decision-making becomes smoother and more 
reliable yeah. based on that. I'm excited to try it once it comes out. So so let me let me rephrase it in a different way that maybe helps me like I understand what you're saying, but the way I think about it, so is it is it basically the ability to um speed up the decision making process of gauging if a specific situation is safe or not? Is that really the, the yeah. best way of I'll, thinking about it? I, okay. I think a lot faster. A Got lot, lot okay. faster. I mean it's yeah, it's because that to me felt like the biggest limitation of the system is yeah. that if I if I hit the throttle, like it does it does it perfectly, but it's the yeah. freaking throttle input that is the last thing I feel is the thing that they have to solve. Stay in a lane, no problem. Choosing the right direction to go, no problem. Like ninety nine point nine percent of the time, unless it's some crazy construction area that has no markings, right? Which sometimes yep. happens here, which is like even I don't know what the hell I'm doing, right? So. Um, but if it's if it's somewhat well marked, uh, it's it's a hundred percent of the time the steering input is correct. It's that throttle input. So and if that is a hundred percent, if right now the reason why there's hesitation or lack of movement or jitterness is because the speed the the process the speed of the process to verify that what it wants to do from a throttle perspective is safe or not, and if that's going to dramatically improve the speed of that decision making, then then to me. If that is the case, if that is the case, boy, are we close to this thing going fully live for everybody and everybody having their yeah. mind blown. Because that is like almost all of what's required for this thing to be like almost perfect. Yeah, and, and to be clear, it, it doesn't mean all the neural nets with it. It's not like it's just one neural net that they have, right? right. There's many that neural many. nets, many transformers, all that. But it doesn't mean they're all going to have the, essentially the video ability to put everything into vector space, but it means they're doing more and more of it. Just like a lot of their code, I mean, and this is the other part he says here, many upgrades to core code. A lot of their core code, uh, uh, Karpathy said, was still just heuristics, right? Just the back of points. Human coded, yeah, C++ type coding. Oh, I see, I see. And they're see, trying to move more of that into the neural net as well, right? So there's, it's, you know, it's a uh, so depending a, on the situation, it's like handing off like, so if I'm in an intersection, it's going to go to the surround video. And if I'm just in a, say on, on a, on a lane by myself, a single lane road with no pedestrians, it's doing the C++ code. Is that the right way of thinking about it? Yeah. So or is that too I, simplistic? I don't know what, I mean, I think that's a, a good way of thinking about it, but I don't know what, what part of the core code they're referring to when they say that it's still part of C++ and it's not a neural net yet. Oh, I see, um, I see, it, I see. Yeah, so it, okay. I, I know that they're making this change okay. slowly, but again, I mean, Elon said this is a big release. He didn't say anything about it. And then he released, you know, he, he mentioned what will be in the release. And this seemed very, very exciting. And, okay. and again, you can go back and see what, what Andre Kapathy said about about that previous release and what he was most excited about. And I think all we're seeing here is now, is like, that was a test, right? How does this work? Let's make sure that works well. Okay, now let's start adding this. Let's convert more of the neural nets from this bag of points to this yeah. other way of doing things. And I yeah. think, and I, obviously that's what Elon's driving and that's what he's seen. And sure, there's more things to debug and things like that because, right, yeah. there's always bugs. But I think, I mean, it, I've said this before and I've been wrong, but... I think this is a very exciting update. I think this one, this might be one of those that you really notice the difference. Got it. So I, I don't know. I just want to talk beforehand. That way, you know, maybe at least I could put some of these thoughts in your head so that when you use yeah. it, like maybe you're like, 
and who knows, maybe, maybe I'm giving you a placebo that I shouldn't be giving you, but it's just, I'm so curious. Like, do you notice a difference or there's certain spots? Yeah. Where, oh, it was never this smooth before. And it's, and then it makes you wonder, is this because this is going to, you know, surround video now yeah, versus yeah. the bag of points versus like frames, pixels, figuring that out. I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, no, my I'm area- really excited about this. My area is notorious for having situations like like it's it's very easy for me to see progress because there's so like certain situations are just like like so obviously not performed well and other ones mm -hmm. are and any sort of like improvement that I see is like super super obvious so I'm I'm dying for this I I usually get my update like 2 weeks after the first wave goes out I'm usually part of the second okay. wave of the release um so I maybe I won't get it if it releases in the next couple of days I might get it in, in 2 weeks time I would say okay. um but we'll yeah. see We'll see what happens. No, exciting. I'm excited do, to see it, man. Do you find it calming when you use FSD beta or is it still stressful for you? Um, I wouldn't say it's stressful. I have to, I have to, I have to be actively engaged. Let's put it that way. Like I have to be constantly monitoring to make sure to give me the full confidence that it's not going to do the wrong thing. Um, mm -hmm. and maybe because I'm maybe I'm being overly cautious or I'm just constantly seeing if it's doing the right, like if it's improving, it might be that, uh, it, it, it's not at the point where like, say if I'm doing navigator and autopilot on the highway, if I'm driving with that, like, I don't really have to, I don't worry at all because I just know like the amount of things that can go wrong are very small <laughs> on a highway. Mm -hmm. Technically, like if you're thinking about like, um, you know, the kind of variables yeah. that you're dealing with. Um, so then I, then it, a navigate on autopilot on the highway reduces my stress in the car. Full self-driving in the city, um, I would say at the, at the, in the best case scenario, which is most of the time, I have the same level of stress than I usually would if I'm driving the car. Like it doesn't lower the stress. Um, it's more fun. <laughs> it's more fun <laughs> and it's engaging. But um, I think ultimately, like what the question you asked is the perfect way to gauge if this thing's ready. If it does the same sort of um, um, uh, stress relief that it does for me in the city as Navigator on a pilot does for me on the highway, then then I'm gonna be like, this thing is ready for release. Um, but it, okay. it's interesting to see though, because as a passenger in a car, like, are you ever really less, like sometimes I'm more stressed out being the passenger. You know what I'm saying? So like, yeah. if if I'm with a driver that doesn't quite know what what if they're not driving the same way that I would drive, I immediately get more stressed. You know, and I'm not talking about my wife. I would never say that. You know, but uh, <laughs> no, like truly, I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not saying that sarcastically, even though <laughs> it might come off. She's that on way. the other side of the screen holding a knife. Like yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, I'm you, coming yeah, for you. You're not gonna say anything, are you? Yeah. <laughs> ah, no. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I think I think that's a super interesting dynamic, and that's why maybe as full self driving rolls out, I'm wondering like how much of that is going to take part of this because I think people, I wonder what percentage of the people are naturally more stressed out being a passenger versus a driver. I think it's mm -hmm. a significant population, and perhaps that's why full self driving in the city feels the way it feels is because maybe a lot of us are conditioned to be more nervous when other people are driving. And that's the way. I, that's the way I think. You know, um, I don't yeah. know. I don't know, but we'll see. I, yeah, I, I think. I feel the same way. Um, mm -hmm. If I'm in the passenger seat, I, I do have more stress sometimes just because 
I'm not in control and being that close to a windshield, you feel like you should, you know, right. You should have control. But if I'm right. like in an Uber and, I, and I'm in the back seat, honestly, I don't even think twice about it. I put my AirPods in, I'm That's on my true. phone. I, I just, so I think it also depends on where you're sitting. Plays mm. an impact on it. Um, but let me ask you one more question and I, yeah. I'm sure you have to go soon. No, keep going. That's <laughs> like fine. I said, I, I could talk all day. Um, no problem. How many places have you used FSD beta? Like, have you only really used it in Austin or have you gone to yeah. Dallas? Have you gone to LA? Okay. Just Austin. Just Austin. I do hear that full self-driving is better in certain cities, which I think makes sense because most of the data collection is going to come from probably California in that area. Mm -hmm. And so the situations and the, the, the data sets that are provided are more conducive to solve the problems that the Californian roads would give. But in theory... It's like no different than like, you know, I don't know if you experienced this, but say you're driving in a brand new area. Like, like if I'm driving in an area that I'm familiar with, I'm going 10 over, you know, I'm going mm -hmm. 10 over. I know exactly where the things are. I know exactly how I'm going to behave here. I know what kind of variables I'm going to save uh, a face. But if you're in a brand new area, like say I go driving for the first time in, uh, I don't know, Los Angeles. I've never driven in Los Angeles. Like I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be driving much closer to the speed limit. I'm gonna be more hesitant. I'm not gonna be as confident making certain maneuvers. I'm gonna be much more careful when I'm merging into certain spots. I'm gonna be weary of like the, the road conditions and stuff. I'm gonna be watching for potholes and things because I don't have a mental map of where they're gonna be, you know? So like, um, yeah, I, I'm curious, like how much of the the data sets that are collected in those cities that they perhaps don't have as much as much data are a direct correlation to how our brains work when we're in a brand new region. And again, I'm speaking for myself, but I don't know if, if you're the same way where like if you're in a new area, yeah. you're going to be driving more carefully. No, absolutely. And, and that makes me wonder, you know, how is there something within and this is what I was asking is because it makes you wonder, is there something within FSD beta that essentially says, oh, I'm in Palo Alto now. So drive differently based on this geolocation or I don't th think this so. is a new set of rules. Well, so th the reason I ask is because for us, uh, trying to figure out how to use my words today. Um, <laughs> like, like you were saying, if I go to a new city, you're more hypersensitive, right? Right. Mm -hmm. you, to the driving mm -hmm. and everything mm -hmm. you're doing. Mm -hmm. But theoretically, the only reason that is, is because you haven't done it before. But the way FSD beta is at least talked about is that I can put it anywhere and it should just be able to drive. So it shouldn't have to have that recall of, oh, I've been here or I've seen this or I've done this. Right. So like we're comfortable going 10 over because I already know what's going to happen two miles before I even get there. Right. Yeah. It's not like the, the, the vehicle is like, oh, I'm here. I know what's going to happen. It's not like it's got an HD map built into it. But I feel like it has to have something in it because there are certain rules that are different based on where you are, right? North Carolina has certain rules that you can't pass or you can't stay in the left lane if you are not passing someone. Uh, if you go to the UK, there's That's certain everywhere. rules there. I mean, yeah, <laughs> well, yes, you would think. It didn't happen in Texas, that, I'll tell you that much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you'll, just, you'll just get ran over by, by oh some lifted truck. Yeah, <laughs> on the right lane, no less. Yeah, yeah, I know. I see. I see what you're saying. I don't know if it's so much like geofence. I just think the, again, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But like, I wonder if it's just a, uh, it's maybe the 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 conditions of, like the the variables that are being shown in that region that you're driving in dictate mm -hmm. the behavior of the car. 
And if you don't have what it might be, it might be as it might be as simple as like how wide the lanes are. You know, like if yeah. if uh, if the lanes in Texas are they are wider here because there's so many freaking pickup trucks and semi trucks that fly through here. Like a lot of the lanes are and they have a lot more room. They're wider. So will having a wider lane somehow influence the neural net to approach a, a specific situation differently because of its position in the lane? And is that going to somehow impact the statistics that drive the the software that say if you have a center bias or a right bias for a left turn in a wider lane, the chances of blah happening are this. And that's why the car behaves a specific way in Texas versus California. You know what I'm saying? Like it yeah, just could no, be yeah. those small things could be dictating how it behaves. I, I could be 100% wrong, but intuitively, I think because building in like a geofence thing for the code feels like a complexity. Like a human yeah. literally has to sit down and do it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't think I mean so much like geofence, but more like if I'm in a certain, I don't know, if there's certain rules for certain cities or states like Chicago has weird things where You'll see a stop sign both directions, right? Like, like there'll be a stop sign on both sides of like uh, I'm literally quoting a video I saw from Frenchie. Um, mm. but there's a stop sign here, and there's the same stop sign on the other side of the intersection. Just it's what they do in Chicago, I guess. Ah. And it's like, okay, well, if you're in Chicago, maybe maybe FSD realizes, all right, I'm in Chicago. Here's a library of rules just to keep in mind that are specific to Chicago. Wait, Chicago right. has two stop signs back to back in the intersection? Yeah, it's weird. Uh, not again. I've been to Chicago like three times, but this is just yeah. from a video I was watching with Frenchie. It's like on both sides of the intersection. And what would happen on some of his videos, the, the FSD would go, it would kind of stop halfway through and then just keep rolling through. It, it would realize, oh, no, that's not a real stop sign for me. It was just this weird situation, but okay. Hang on, let me just make case. sure I understand this. Like, because if this is true, like, what the fuck are they thinking? So, so you have an intersection, right? You have this way and this way, and then if I'm going yeah. up here, here's the corner, here's the stop sign, right? And here's the intersection. So there's a stop sign here. You're telling me there's a stop sign here too, like right, like in the in the next corner. Yeah, like I'm trying to look this up right now. Let me see. I'm about to write a letter to the city of Chicago. <laughs> I'm 99% sure I know exactly what video this happened in. So okay. I can always text yeah, you. Just send me, yeah, but, send me the link and then I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's wild. But, but anyways, it's, sounds, it's, it's it not sounds the point super I was confusing. Yeah. yeah, sounds it super is. confusing. But, yeah. Yeah, the point I was just making is that there's certain rules that can be for certain cities or states. So I would imagine there's like a library of rules that might develop over time for a state or a city or. Yeah. A, you know, just just to be able to access, like, oh, okay, well, here are special rules over here, special rules for this place. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, how are you ever going to learn all the rules? Because what's okay in one city might not be okay in another city. I see. Yeah. You know, or or yeah. the the only time that thing appears is when the rules are in effect. So it's not so much about learning the rule, but it's learning about the situation. Like, yeah, you know true. what I'm saying? Um, yeah, that's so weird. And then you, you run into a whole host of crazy stuff too. Like say people start like doing things like that are super weird. Like they put a stop sign in the middle of the road, for example, you know, like a human would yeah. probably be like, why the hell am I listening to this? But I'm wondering if you can build that into the neural net as well that says, hey, don't listen to the stop sign unless there's an intersection or there's a line. I don't know. It, it gets crazy at that point where people will go out of their way to try and yeah. trick these things. But anyway, um, Dude, thank yeah. you so much. Really appreciate it. What a conversation, bro. Woo! Oh. Two and a half hours. Our new record.
a new record. <laughs> I love it. I feel like we could go way yeah. longer too, but I think I think definitely what I would love to do is uh, if you're up for it over time, you know, I would love to continue having these conversations. I feel like our stuff flows really easy. Um, I feel like we we just uh, yeah, I feel like we have really good conversations at two times. We've talked for four and a half hours total so far in the last two yeah. weeks, and I feel like we can go for even longer. So you do, you're welcome back anytime, anytime, man. No, about I, anything. I appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I yeah. literally. I made a list of a couple of things I just want to talk. We we didn't even hit half of it, you know. So I mean, there's there's so much to talk about. Um, there is. So yeah, it's, but you, seriously, uh, you're you're amazing. I lo I love the way your mind works, and not because we think so similarly, but because you know you make me think about things a little bit differently as well. Likewise. Um, so yeah, so I appreciate the time. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, of course. Thank you to all the people who watch and listen. Uh, you know, really appreciate everybody's time, especially if you stuck around for two and a half hours. It's you know, we understand how valuable your time is. So thank Heck you. Yeah. And then one more time for people that maybe they're coming across uh, 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 like with you for the first time, uh, oh. YouTube channel, social, anything you yep. got? Uh, yeah, investing against the grain. Uh, Twitter, I don't even know what my Twitter name is, to be honest. Because like Nicholas <laughs> Gibbs or uh, something? Nick, yeah, Nick, it's my name, Nicholas Gibbs or at Nick Gibbs IAG. Yeah. Investing against the grain is too long. So <laughs> I tried like five different ways to like make, make it shorter. And then yeah. I came up with one way and all of a sudden, like everybody was asking me, how do I find your, your Twitter? I'm like, okay, this was not intuitive enough. I need to change it. So I just yeah. changed it to my name, but there you go. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, again, Thanks again, thank man. You so much. Really appreciate you. Yeah, appreciate absolutely. Time. Make sure you go check out his channel and yeah, dude.